Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome, friends. Uh, our guest today is like an American Ronin, which is essentially a samurai without a master. <laughs> uh, Red here uh, has spent a lot of time uh, in the Navy, serving in Iraq over there. He has spent years with Blackwater, um, doing some crazy shit in Japan and Afghanistan and stuff like that. Uh, he's done quite a bit in Africa as well. And he's recently made the move, over the last couple of years, he's made the move from um, masterless warrior into hyper-local urban agriculture. Give it up for my friend, Richard Bryan. Wait, no applause? No, here's the applause. My name is Brian Chinorn. I'm an explorer of people, places, and culture. This is how it works. In my travels spanning over 20 countries across four continents, I've had the pleasure of engaging in authentic conversations with amazingly interesting people. These are their stories, on location and unfiltered. Presented by 8B Media, this is Half the City. Dude, this is fucking lo-fi, bro. This is just a couple of microphones and a goddamn recording studio. Goddamn, not even a studio. This is a makeshift. This is this is a this is a private couch-filled office in a WeWork. Uh, there's nothing more to it. It's the hey, microphones. I mean- Adobe Audition. I'm not going to tell you any more about that. But <laughs> I mean, it could be worse. We could, we could be in a coffee shop trying to do this. It does happen. Yeah. Let me get that a little bit closer to you. Oh. Getting up close and personal now, are we? Yeah. I mean, you want to keep it about a fist. You know, just, just so it captures. You want a fist to... <laughs> I'm not saying. I'm, 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 I'm creasing the gears right now. Yeah. Oh, shit. <sighs> so, Richard, Red, I'm going to call you Red because we know. Yeah, we makes know, sense. We know the situation. I'm a ginger bastard this anyway, guy, so. This guy's fucking beard matches his grape. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. There's. I was watching this uh, thing Not the other right. day where uh, um, he's a YouTube star, and he was making fun of the fact that he doesn't tan, and he's like, I just go from white to red and he's like is tan the color after red because i never seem to get that far well yeah that, that's about the size of it when it comes to my head so i don't, I don't think i've ever seen you not red yeah i mean that, that, the name fits right. you know, what what can you what can i say yeah um so dude let's uh, let's get into it a little bit um you you were telling me the other day you just came back from a couple of backpacking trips right oh uh, yeah here in washington state Tell me about that. I want to hear about this, and then I want to go into that other stuff. But, like, this is the most recent shit, so let's hear about this. Yeah, so it was just uh, their backpacking trips in an area, and then um, Alpine Lakes Wilderness here in Washington, you have to have a permit for. Mm. It's a lottery permit. Uh, and you get to spend, you know, between a couple of days and up near two weeks out there just kind of packing around, seeing these uh, really awesome Alpine Lakes that, you know are pretty much untouched and fairly pristine nice mountain goats are super aggressive up there it's actually kind of funny yeah they uh they for for whatever reason there's not a lot of naturally occurring salt and they're addicted to salt so humans urinate goats come try to get the the salt (laughs) out of it so they're drinking pee yeah basically Ah, so so they ask you to like uh grills an animal form (laughs) yeah so they uh 
So basically, they uh, they ask you to you know urinate on the rocks because it makes it so when the goats go after it, they don't decimate the plant life and everything else. So, so they encourage you to pee on the rocks. Well, yeah, so that it doesn't. Uh, so that way, the goats don't end up tearing everything up. But nice. funny thing is, is, the goats have gotten so used to it that they actually become a little bit aggressive about it, trying to get as close they're to like, you as Give possible. Give me your pee. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, it's like, there, there's it's like a, a fucking crackhead. Like I will suck your dick for some pee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically. There was a there was a couple of uh, there was a couple of girls in the group that kind of actually almost got like chased down for it. It, it was pretty funny. Um, I in the morning just even trying to just go check out one of the lakes and a waterfall just to take yeah. pictures, and you look up and there's a goat there. Like, are you gonna pee? Like, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> giving you the look. Yeah, and they follow you down there, and they basically like oddly feels like they've got you pinned up against this rock face, like. Either you pee or I knock you off the cliff. <laughs> but, I mean, outside of that, it was pretty awesome. We got to see uh, a deer right up close. It really didn't care too much that we were around. Mm. And then on the way down from the second trip as well, there was a, a pretty sizable buck that basically was just standing there staring at us like, mm. what's up, people? <laughs> you know, so they, they kind of get a... They're, it's, it's odd. They're still pristine. They still come around. But then yeah. they're getting used to humans enough and... As we're not being too much of a threat, that they kind of just leave you alone. Huh. Um, nice. And then, of course, we had uh, <laughs> one of my friends that I grew up with since the time we were like ten. He came out with us, and he ended up leaving his tent open just a smidge, and a little field mouse came in. Oh shit! And he's not really afraid of much, but he screams like a girl when a mouse gets in his tent. Um, and that's not to say a bad thing about screaming like a girl, but when he, he's got a voice that isn't well suited for that falsetto scream. So when, when, I'm, when I'm saying scream like a girl, it's more of a, it's this high-pitched sound that he makes that isn't within his normal vocal, cat, uh, vocal range. So it, it's pretty interesting. Focus up and you know, but the the lakes were amazing. We got to see some peaks, uh, mountains and stuff, or um, ranges, and then we got to see some crazy people actually doing uh, some approaches and mm-hmm. some straight up rock climbs on oh, what's cool. called Prusik. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it was a it was a good time. Lots so, of cool stuff to see. Got it to you know, kind of clear out, yeah. not have to pay attention. And one thing, the water tastes better, even though you have to filter it. It really tastes better. I bet, man. And uh, it's so cold, which is so awesome. Really? It's that, it's that fresh mountain water. Yeah. Right? It's uh, all, most of it's all glacier or snow base nice. filled. And, uh, there was still snow up there, oddly enough at the tail in, or the middle of, uh, July yeah. in Washington state in the North Cascades. So yeah, we even got to do a little, uh, snow sliding. Nice. Yeah. In order to get places a little bit uh, faster and more fun. Nice. So, so for people listening, we're currently in Seattle. Um, in, ca- in, ha- in case you haven't realized it at this point, um, this show is pretty fucking mobile. You know, I got to make sure that you guys know that where we are right now, so we have so you have some um, reference, right? Maybe some imagination as to like, look, you know, Seattle is fucking surrounded by goddamn mountains and water. Right? And water, exactly. I mean, there's so much water, so much mountains, the alpines like you're talking about, the Cascades. Um, yeah, and for those of you East Coasters, you don't know mountains till you've been here. Dude. The, the Appalachians remember, are hills. They're I remember hills. When, I was in, uh, when I was in Boston, people were like, oh, we're going to go to Killington in Vermont. And I like check it out, and it's like fucking like ice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like bunny, like their, their black diamonds are like bunny hills. <laughs> yeah. Like, 
<laughs> like, okay. All right, buddy. Check out, you know, why don't, why don't you come by uh, Colorado sometime or check out Seattle or Tahoe or, you know, Big Bear. <laughs> Right. <laughs> see some actual. See, I see some actual mountains. I've only but, gone skiing once, and the, the one time it was at uh, Breckenridge, and my buddy, who is like a his, he's a big time snowboarder, and his his brother in law is a professional snowboarder and snowboard instructor <laughs> and shit, and he's like, here, he's like, here, have some fucking skis, and he takes me down the blues first. I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing, dude. <laughs> it was uh, it, it was it was intimidating. Let's put it that way. I mean, I did it. I don't know about you, but that's sort of how I learned how to swim. It was just really? like, you just fucking throw here's a, in there. Here, yeah, here's, here's a lake. Just uh, you're getting tossed out of the boat mm-hmm. and you'll figure it out or you don't. I mean, sometimes that's the best way to learn things. Sometimes <laughs> it uh, doesn't work out so well. I but. just remember, dude, the first time I went down, like I got off the ski lift and I didn't know how to stand up. So like, <laughs> I'm, so, like I'm like crouching, like my ass is almost touching the fucking snow. And Trying I'm to figure out mo- it. And I'm still moving forward. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> I'm already moving. I'm not even standing. <laughs> then I, then I, fucking, I was going down the hill, dude. And I'm like not far from the ski lift like on the like I could see it in the distance I could see people like going up and I fell and my <laughs> both skis fell off my feet right and like I tried to stand up to go after the skis and I fucking sunk like waist deep in the goddamn snow post hold on that yeah, that's awesome <laughs> and people are looking at me they're like like from above they're going hey, are you okay and I'm just like leave me alone in my fucking misery I'll, I'll just slide down yeah, I'll, just, I'll just uh I'll just Get on my stomach and slide down. Right. <laughs> oh, that's that's hilarious. But no, yeah. So the uh, to get into this pat uh, to get up into this part of the mountains though, it's uh, it's that de- you have to earn it. It's yeah. it's about six miles from the trailhead to the top, but the last uh, mile you end up, or it's point nine of a mile, you end up taking on something in the neighborhood of like two thousand feet in of elevation wow. gain. Yeah. It. It. Uh, that's, during, that's pretty intense, dude. Yeah, like, it it was uh, it was definitely um, pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took us. Uh, there was a few different. There's three little pockets of our group. The the first guy he took longer to eat lunch at the bottom than it did to get up for him to walk up it. But really, then again, he's former so marine he, so as well. So he's like a mountain goat, basically. Yeah, he, yeah, he's former marine mountain goat yeah. and spent time in in Iraq. And yeah, he yep. basically did it in. If not two hours, or if it took him the full two hours, it was somewhere hour 45, two hours. Mm-hmm. We were a little behind him, took us about two hours and 45. And yeah. then the, the the stragglers in our group still did pretty good. They did it just over three hours. Wow. Um, just for that 0.9 miles. And we're talking 0.9 of a mile. That's not even that far. And it took, you know, nearly three hours. Three hours. hours. Like, that's yeah. crazy, dude. Yeah, it, it, mo- uh, it moves up. I forget what the pitch ends up being, but you're definitely doing... For every foot forward, you're definitely doing some feet up. Mm. So, and it definitely burns out the quads. Oh, oh. for sure, dude. No, that reminds me, <laughs> especially um, carrying 50 pounds. Right. I mean, that well, that reminds me when I was in Beijing. Uh, me and three of my friends, uh, we went camping on the Great Wall, and so so my buddy Yo, shout out to Yosef. What up? He's in Hong Kong right now, um, but he's he's uh, he he actually hiked uh, the Great Wall like 40 something times. He he recently scaled. Uh, he recently did um, uh, Mount Everest, mm. right? Base camp, and, and he did it without a fucking Sherpa. Like he mapped it out himself, and like he's this dude's a fucking hiker, dude. Let's put it that way. Um, <clears throat> but he mapped out this stretch of the wall because you know it's technically illegal to camp on the Great Wall. Mm-hmm. So we found the stretch because you know it's three thousand miles long or whatever it is. So there's parts yeah. that are like unrestored, you know, not a parts lot of people it, go yeah. to. Yeah, you get too far out. <clears throat> yeah. 
And uh, he mapped out this stretch, uh, which was crazy. It was like rubble, dude. Um, so for anybody that's, if you haven't, if you don't know much about the Great Wall, if you haven't been there, it's 3,000 miles, but it's along a mountain spine. It's like along, like on the ridge, right? So like when we get to this stretch, um, not only was there like no parking area, you know, it was just fucking out in the boonies, right? Um, but, you know, we stayed the night, so we had our backpacks full of food and water and all that other stuff. And I swear to God, the first 45 minutes was like scrambling, like hand and feet <laughs> up this mountain ridge just, I mean, to get to, to. just to get to the wall, dude. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to because based on where they geographically where it is. Right. I mean, there, um, there is a mountain range in between Mongolia and China. So, I mean, that's why they <laughs> built the wall to keep the goddamn Mongolians out. Yeah, I mean, and it worked for a long time. It did. But they figured it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just ask the cons. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think they built it to keep the cons out. Yeah, I'm right? pretty sure. And yeah. Genghis and all the, you know, I think yeah. Kublai Khan might have might have figured it out. But uh, yeah, yeah, I can't remember if it was Kublai or if it was, it might have been Kublai that figured it out. But yeah. uh, but it was you know it was an ordeal. Um, but it was you know that was kind of cool. Like as an aside, like that was kind of cool to like you know be in this area like like the touristy areas of the great wall are like full of people oh yeah right i mean they were restored in the last like 30 years so it's all like new looking brick and shit like that mm -hmm. but just like it's like easy it, to get to takes good photos yeah. right so like like in uh in chinese in chinese slang they say ren shang ren hai which means people mountain people see which is just like fucking people everywhere yep. you know kind of like well, when you you know when you're when you're at a sports game or a concert and you're leaving mm -hmm. you know Kind of like that, but like all day, every day. Right? Yeah. Um, so so yeah, Tokyo is pretty much that way, all day, every day, but, everywhere. But Tokyo, Tokyo people <laughs> have this sense of um, common courtesy. Oh, of course. So it's a little bit different. Um, but I mean, there is just a ton of people everywhere. I love China. I love Beijing. Don't get me wrong. But um, there's you know there's some they've got some room to grow in terms of stuff like that yeah but there's not a culture on the planet that doesn't of course um <laughs> but so the point being with that that long-winded thing like the point being is that we found the stretch where we didn't see a single other person for a day and a half dude on the great wall <laughs> right like yeah. it's crazy um so yeah so i can relate in you know yeah, in a sense to like no, the scaling yeah. and like being in the middle of nowhere and all yeah, that other it's shit. actually it's quite nice it really is uh I was talking to another person about it a couple weeks ago that uh, it can be one of those uh, temporary transformative things where mm -hmm. the world's just getting to you. You're looking for a yeah. reset on everything. Some people think that you need a uh, near-death experience to really kind of set your course or to end up yeah. really influencing your life. No, something like that Sometimes can. Sometimes you just need to be like out in the middle of nowhere. Like, like for example, I, like, um, I, I really enjoy stand-up paddleboarding. And I like it, you know, for the workout, of course. But, like, what I really like about it is I can be 100 yards out from the beach, but I'm miles away from anybody. Yeah. You know? It can be that simple. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so you don't, have to, you don't have to go so crazy and do, you know, 30 miles in four days in order to really kind of get it. But right. um, it can be anything for some people. Um, exactly. I mean, I've got a friend that does it in music. He goes out to his garage, and that basically changes his life for a while. Yeah. 
Until the people creep back in. Exactly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that sounds really cool. So, so tell me a little bit about, like, let's go back. I want to go back, 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 back. Like, you know, talk about your Navy stuff. Talk about your Blackwater shit. Because, you know, even with this backpacking stuff, like, there's there's stuff that's, like, I'm sure there's stuff that you took from there that's still relevant to this sort of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, um, more so the, the Blackwater days and the uh, post-military contractor days. Did a lot more trampling around in the mountains, uh, places like Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which oddly enough, in Afghanistan and New Mexico, sorry, New Mexico, but I mean, you're just the Afghanistan of the United States. <laughs> Geographically, it, it's pretty much the same. The way the structure shout out to New every, Mexico, yeah, the way the the structure of the cities are set up, it's actually oddly similar. Uh, mm. You've got the Albuquerque to Santa Fe, which is pretty much your. Uh, Kabul to Bagram kind of thing and then you go up into the Taos Mountains in New Mexico and that's like heading up towards the Salong Pass of Afghanistan mm. looks pretty much the same probably a good reason that Jarhead the movie was filmed actually in Albuquerque was it? yeah so huh. um, there, there's a whole lot to it and I guess I shouldn't shout so badly in this microphone before I start creating some no, you feedback you can shout all you want dude it's all good Sounded like I was getting a little bit of a well. If you see it turning reverb, red, if yeah. you see it turning red, that's when you know that you're saying too much. <laughs> that I'm saying too, too much or too loud. <laughs> it's it's like I probably already it's said. The, it's, it's the pack it up. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, it's like, the it's the supreme it's the supreme court light. You're green, you're good. Yellow starts to run out of time. You hit red, and you, oh, stop talking. Yeah. Um, but oh. yeah, so I mean, Afghanistan. I le- I learned quite a bit about uh, being able to carry weight through uh, mountainous terrain and whatnot, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things you, you learn that's interesting is uh, when you're going downhill is foot placement can be incredibly um, important in oh, terms sure. of how you do it and the heel stomp activity that most people don't um, do only when they're in snow. It actually helps is, out quite a bit. What is this heel stomp activity? So, so we have a tendency to walk heel toe, heel toe, or when we're going downhill or runners do, they go more to a mid strike to where yeah. the middle of their foot is. Mm-hmm. But if you actually kind of lean back, stand straight up when you got weight and you uh, kind of straighten your leg and then drop your heel first mm. solidly into the loose terrain, whether that's uh, sand or snow, mm-hmm. and then you kind of can't dilute, you kind of can't your feet outward almost like you're doing a um, kind of like a military salute stance. Mm-hmm. You get that 45 degree angle and yep. you just set your just feet that way. together. Yep. Feet slightly apart, toes mm-hmm. slightly apart. Yeah, and then just kind of step each one at a time that way, and it, uh, it makes for good, solid footing when you're coming oh. down. And you, you can move pretty quick downhill that way. That's interesting. Like, yeah, I, I, I learned I, it from, uh, oddly enough, <clears throat> I learned it from the Afghans. Oh, I, sure. I grew up around mountains, and it's not something I'd ever done, and I see them run down these steep, sandy faces, and I'm, like, wait a minute, how did you do that? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like, crazy. oh, you know, and they Dude, know how to do it. I, um, so that reminds me of this, uh, this time I did a, I did a three day, um, two night homestay in northern Vietnam, like Sapa Valley, <clears throat> it was the foothills of the Himalayas, right? Yeah. Um, I was in good cycling shape at that point, so like my legs were strong or whatever, but like, I, my guide was this lady. She was like, I don't know, probably 30 something, 30 ish, um, but like, fucking four feet tall (laughs) she was tiny um you know minority minority village person that sort of thing um and she wore these like these sandals these cheap ass plastic sandals with just that wide band that goes across Mm -hmm. it's not a thong it's not anything like that and holy shit dude she just up and down up and down like no no beaten path 
right? Like we were going up and down these Himalayan uh, the, the the foothills, right? Yeah. Just going up and down the stuff like mud path, and you know, and she's just flying, dude. And like, so I took it upon myself. I'm like, I got to keep up with her. Yeah. <laughs> Point of pride, right? Not just... Spoken like a true marine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that, that reminds me. Uh, one time uh, in um, in Thailand, you know, mm-hmm. they they've got the little Muay Thai boxers. Oh sure, yeah. They always have to tell the Marines when you come into port, don't get in, don't don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> Sure enough, there's always there's a Marine always that's one. like, I, I can try this, this dude. And you, you know, the funniest ones are when they're like 14, 15 year old kids. Oh, and yeah. you think that it's, you think that, oh, I'm a big bad Marine that the Marine Corps trained me. And then this within, guy scrawny. yeah, within <laughs> seconds, they get their ass whooped by this little four foot tall, 85 pound Thai kid that, yeah, is right? just tough as nails. Yeah. And, but, Spoken like a true Marine. I got to take it upon myself to keep up with it. Right? It's a yeah. point of pride, man. Yeah, the of few course the it proud. Is. That's how we yeah, roll. Yeah. The few the proud, all right. <laughs> the, the few the but, proud, but, the dumb as fuck. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> isn't it uh, isn't it an old uh, biblical proverb that says pride cometh before the fall? There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true squid. <laughs> So, try to, try to, we, yeah, we, uh, some of us, we try to, we try to finesse it a little bit rather than yeah. just brute force everything. Uh, grace, fall gracefully. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit more about this Afghanistan stuff. So this was when you were in, this was when you were working with Blackwater or was this Yeah. So, uh, I was doing, I was, uh, what, in, like what time frame was this? So this is like, when was that? It was like 2004 four or five ish oh okay so that's um, like the the heat of afghanistan the, it, the it afghanistan was concept. i was well it was in a weird um it was in a weird transition like right at the beginning it was on that transitioning period yeah. from still being really hot and yeah. in everywhere to where then kabul and some of the other places bagram and whatnot yeah. even parts of nangahar and whatnot it kind of had settled down to mm. kind of an equilibrium for quite some time um, we were able was, to go. Was this, was this um, before or after they put um, Karzai in power? This was during Karzai. This was so during Karzai. Okay. Karzai had been in for a couple of years by this point, Got I think, it, okay. or at least or at least a year. I'm just trying to refresh um, my memory because you know, like I was active during 9/11, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't serve, obviously, but uh, I mean, I didn't go over there, obviously, yeah. for reasons uh, out of my control. Um, but. You know, my unit was the first to go to Iraq, right? Yeah. But, like, but it was Afghanistan first. So it was 9-11, Afghanistan, and then for whatever reason, they said, hey, we got to go to Iraq too, which is bullshit, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but Were so, you first Marines? My my yeah. unit was 3-1. 3-1? 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines. We were IMF. <laughs> we fought in Fallujah. Yeah. My, like, uh, we were the first battle in Fallujah. My buddy that's uh, Border Patrol, he was in Afghanistan at the time mm-hmm. before I met him. Yeah. Um, he was active duty Marine for 3-1. No shit. Yeah, he was. Uh, oh, do you um, know what company he was in? Uh, three one one. I want to say. Well, no, 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 no. It was three no. one, and then the. What uh, was, it was it? So I was weapons company. Yeah, I um, but don't, it was like Lima, India, and Kilo. I don't. I, Lima, I, India, I would Kilo, have. And weapons I would company. have to ask him. But was so, he a rifleman or was he a weapons guy? He was. He was infantry, straight up grunt. He Just was straight. The, he 0-3-11. was three eleven. Yeah, he was oh three eleven. He was. He was the uh, sergeant for his platoon. Wow. Um. The actual, um, the Soldier of Forging magazine, actually, at one point, there was a photo taken. Um, so he was the Marine sergeant that was actually tasked with doing the Marcus Luttrell recovery after the... Oh, yeah. And the interesting story was we were in the same place, basically, at the same time, didn't know each other yet. So huh. 
Um, was with Blackwater. We, we were in we Kabul. We might have even been in boot camp together. That's weird. Uh, uh, that's I think dude, he's sorry, younger. I think he's younger, but um, <clears throat> so he he's closer. Um, but yeah. So anyway, so, so yeah. So three one didn't. We we were not in Afghanistan. Um, the unit that went to Afghanistan before, like the first ones in, was one five. For yeah, first battalion. I had I had them backwards. They were also. I was ba- thinking it was one five Iraq three one. No, one five was Afghanistan. They were also based in Camp Pendleton. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. Uh, they were near us, so I was in Camp Horno, which is kind of the. It's like the coastal kind of north ish mm-hmm. area. One five was right at the border of the base. Um, I hope I'm not giving away government secrets. Sorry, government. <laughs> but ish, ish, you know. Um, yeah. But kind, kind of, kind of at the, you know, kind of near the border between, you know, between uh, San Diego and Orange County. Yeah. yeah. And um, but the fun, the interesting thing was, is so during the whole Lone Survivor incident, I was in Kabul mm-hmm. uh, with Blackwater, and a bunch of the Blackwater team were um, were former SEALs that were actually good friends with a lot of those guys. Holy so shit, man. So when it went down twice, we actually were planning um, sending taking a helicopter down to Nangahar and uh, getting out towards that area and uh-huh. jumping into the recovery mission until there was a... And it, it, at first, it, we were having the green light, and then somebody decided it was probably not the right idea to have um, private contractors handling that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so my buddy, um, because helicopters and air support was off limits after, because of the two helicopters getting shot down, so... He was the sergeant that led the platoon on foot to go in, and they got ambushed. And <clears> then during the ambush, I don't know, I still don't know, and I'm not sure even he knows how the photograph was taken, but <clears> it <throat> ended up becoming one of the Marine Corps' coins as well. There's a picture oh, of shit. Marines squatting down behind a rock, uh, one t- with a with a rifle aimed, the other one making a phone call. And that photo made sort of a fortune, and it was also made a Marine Corps coin. and. Yeah. My buddies that started is one of those two guys wow. that are memorialized in that coin. That's crazy, dude. Then he ended up coming contractor working with me in Blackwater in Japan. Then we went to Iraq together with another so, contracting look, company. So, and- so, so for late for so the listeners out there, let me let me um, let me explain what a private contractor for Blackwater is in terms that you can understand. He's a fucking mercenary. <laughs> Right, I mean, pay, you know, your four higher security services in some of the most dangerous parts of the world. Does that sound? Is that accurate? Is that fair? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, whatever, you know. That's all I mean, day's work. <laughs> well, I mean, it. So it, it's a perspective thing, right? Yeah, for so, sure, of course. So I sit down and I I watch the uh, show, The Deadliest Catch, from time to time. Mm-hmm. You know, the crazy ass crab fisherman, and I right. think that is the craziest, stupid That's a job. Crazy fucking job, but that also and, pays well. Well, it pays of course super it does. Well. It's like and six months, and they make like six figures in six in like three well, six months. Yeah, of course. But to me, I think that it's crazy. It's a crazy ass job. Now, mm-hmm. a good chunk of those guys would think that what I was doing back in the day as a contractor with Blackwater and all this stuff was crazy stupid and mm-hmm. i mean when, when you think about it there's some there's some dumb things and we called it delayed death a little bit that sure. you were dead being there it was just a matter of if your card got called while, while you were actually in country or not right. but it, it's perspective you know for me those <clears throat> those deadliest catch people were way crazier than i was doing yeah. but then again it's because i was doing a job that i was well trained to do and well equipped for sure and i knew my equipment no different than an electrician knows his pliers and his wire strippers mm-hmm. and everything else no different than a crab fisherman knows mm-hmm. his nets and gear for right. me i always thought the distinction was is that humans are a lot more predictable than nature 
So, sure. so when you're out there, even when you're, even when you're surprised in an ambush, there's still things that humans do that are predictable on some level. So you can still make plans on some degree and you can still rely on them with some level of reliability, but right. nature just does whatever the hell it wants. I mean, <laughs> no stopping he, even when there, even when there's weather predictions and weather forecasts, I mean, yeah, the weathermen are never right. Man. Yeah. Especially in these places. Right. So. I mean, and you were in in China too, yeah. the South China Sea. That oh, dude, that, got that is, all the time. I man. know, and it's so unpredictable. Yeah. So you're going out into this thing with against effectively an op- opponent or a foe that you can't predict anything. Mm-hmm. You're just flying by the seat of your pants all of the time, hoping for the best. So I mean, that I guess that's what perspective is. So yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was some crazy environments. You know, Afghanistan, Kabul. You know, uh, Nangarhar, Salong mm-hmm. up there. In Iraq, I, I was mostly I was in uh, Baghdad proper, but then we were in Diwaniya, which if you want to go look that up, that was that was a fun show at some point. Let's, po- at some let's look it up right now. I want to see what you're talking about. <laughs> so yeah, so it was uh, Camp what is that Camp Echo in Diwaniya. So th- this camp when we fr- when in, how do you spell it? D I W. A N Oh there yeah there it is right there. Nice. Duania, Iraq. So it's a couple hours south so I'll, of I'll Baghdad. I'll post information on this when we do that yeah. when we post the show but um, oh, oh yeah look at that Polish troops in Iraq Camp Echo. So um yeah so basically it was this little postage stamp of a um, forward operating base mm-hmm. in central Iraq near near the Ninjef province. But this thing was so small. I mean it was literally probably the size of a small school compound. The, the camp or the the, town? the entire camp. Wow! In wow. the in this town, yeah. And so they had this tire factory in town and whatnot. And so it was first like the last place you would expect a yeah I know, military right? encampment to be. Yeah, like it was kind of that's good shit. But it was kind of a key point for the Najaf province yeah. for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. But this so initially post the invasion and us trying to figure out what to do, you know, we brought in the coalition. Mm-hmm. The Spanish took it and. No offense to those Spaniards out there, but you kind of you lost it. You got overrun, mm. um, and it's because the Shout city. Out to Spain. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> and to be fair, it, it's it's not a it wasn't a super large base. The area would go through ebbs and flows where the insurgency would build up and it would dissipate, but eventually they got overrun. So then the Polish took over. And they were the ones running the camp when we were there with a small contingent of U.S. Army uh, military police. And so and basically the it was this um, kind of school kids playing with each other where the Polish would completely um, be out in town in full force. And then they would slowly start drawing back towards the base. The insurgency would get more and more emboldened by it. And then at some point, we ended up having to drop a Moab, which is a mother of all bombs, yeah. into the middle of the city, kind of kind of reset the situation. The Polish went back out. They kind of held it, and then they got drawn back to the base. Um, so Diwaniya was probably the dodgiest place I was. It was. We were getting rocketed pretty much every night. Yeah, these uh, are one, RPGs, right? Like, uh, or like full one, one five five Katushas. Um, um, I'm not familiar with that. So, so. Y- usually, you know, 155s are your largest. You can get, or the mm. one, some of the largest. They're mm. they're a lot louder, bigger than a standard mortar. They're mm. yeah. 
you know, one five five millimeter there. So mortars you know, are no joke. I know some. I remember I had some mortarmen in my cat platoon. Yeah, and um, those guys are pretty hard. I mean, rules of engagement. This were starting to change as well, so we weren't allowed to specifically do straight up counter battery. Mm-hmm. Um, which, for those that don't know, counter battery just means we use a, a sound to triangulate a rough position of where they might have been coming from, mm-hmm. and then you just rocket everything back. Yeah, which is effective in certain circumstances, but at the same time, there can be a spray and pray. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there can be significant collateral damage. And yeah, so sure. we were, we were drawing back on that. And the problem was, is they were putting their, um, their rockets and stuff into mounts in the back of pickup trucks. So basically even by the time you were able to get a three point, uh, three pinks, uh, triangulation for a counter battery, mm-hmm the truck had already moved. Mm. So even, you know, and then you're firing even within 30 seconds to a minute, if it took that, if it was that fast, Mm. truck could still fire and move. So the likelihood of you actually hitting the target that was rocketing you was small. So then, you know, we get rocketed every day. And of course we were contractors. We had Polish, uh, we had a Polish dude that was a French, former French foreign legion, Mm. Some British special boat guys, uh, uh, special air guys on the team. Nice. Couple of uh, <laughs> army greeny beanies. When you say special boat and special air, you're talking like special forces. Right? Yeah. So exactly. the basically, so basically, you're 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 a motley crew of badass motherfuckers, basically. Yeah. So the <laughs> so the British they have their SAS and their SBS, so their special air service and their special boats, which is kind of basically the SAS would be sort of like our. It's a cross somewhere between our Army Special Forces and mm-hmm. our U.S. Air Force paratroopers in okay. terms of responsibility. Right. And then so special boats are basically like their version of a Navy SEAL. Oh, okay. And then we had some, um, also some Royal Marine Commandos, so kind of like um, our recon Marines and whatnot. So we had a hodgepodge of British, American, and European guys that were on this team all well-trained, but also a little bit mad in the head, as they would well, say. Cause, you you kind of have to be a little I mean, off to go to do some of that stuff. you know? Well, a, a little bit, yeah. And then it got even more strange. So we lived kind of nearest to where the Marine, uh, or not where the Marine, where the Army Military Police Unit was. Mm-hmm. So every every evening, the rocket... They had their hands full. Oh, oh they definitely <laughs> did. But every, every evening, the rockets always came in right around the same time. Mm. Everybody else is all hunkered down in places. And yeah. we're, we go, we get our chow, we come back. Then we all sit around the uh, the proverbial campfire, just mm-hmm. bullshitting with our with our gear, our guns, our body armor. As these bombs are and, going and off, and basically we're having what we called our mortar tea parties. We yep. were drinking tea and biscuits, you know, cookies and tea, waiting for the mortars <laughs> to start. And then the gear was all preset because then we'd have to repel borders. Which again, for those that don't know what that means. That means that they would use the rockets in order to distract us because we're all mm. hiding. Mm. Hopefully, then they could storm the walls. Mm. So basically, it was this uh, kind of tit for tat thing. They'd rocket us, then they would try to to mount a, an offensive to come over the wall. So you have to have your gear with you in the mortar mm-hmm. shelters to be ready for it. So we just kind of sat around every day, just having a chat, kind of like <laughs> we're having right now, just bullshit and laughing yep. and just waiting for them. <laughs> You know, and the, some of those those uh, army military police guys thought we were batshit crazy. <laughs> of course, and I mean, I mean maybe they have every right to think that. Well, yeah, and maybe we were, but like I said, the, the, those guys that go pick up crab fishing jobs in Alaska, they're crazier well, but, than me. But, but, but that's the thing I'm that concerned. I'm talking about, right? Like, like <laughs> in the Marines, like my Marine Corps training, even as short as it was, like one of those things is you realize that like you can be, you can experience 
you can be in the middle of experiencing fucking hell, dude. But what you realize is that if, if you're with there with somebody, if you're there with somebody else, uh, and you can sit there and bullshit about stuff while while this is all happening, it's yeah. it, it's, it's a completely different thing, dude. It, I mean, it you is know? the it it's makes it manageable. Of, well, yeah, it does, and I mean. Afghanistan was the same way. So mm-hmm. that circa 2004, 2005, it mm-hmm. got to the point where we were allowed to go out in town. There were Lebanese restaurants, French restaurants. Um, you were allowed to go off base and like yeah, check we, out the Yeah, so as Blackwater, we lived in our own compound anyway. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. We also, we were running, we were help training counter-narcotics police for the government mm-hmm. of Afghanistan. We mm-hmm. were doing those kinds of things. So we were... We weren't doing a lot of things directly with U.S. military. They had we were getting support from them so we could access right. military installations. Sure. We um, got intel from them, mm-hmm. of course. Since we were working in the same sphere, we also had to have uh, crypto to be able to talk back and forth, mm-hmm. so that we could deconflict. So that in the event that we were out on our own thing and in the middle of a fight, and U.S. military were in, or ISAF forces were in the middle of a fight. Mm-hmm. We could make sure that we weren't shooting at each other. Yeah, kind of, kind sure. of important. Mm-hmm. You know, blue crypto on blue. Mean, crypto meaning uh, the, encrypted cr- messaging. Yeah, encrypted radio. Yeah. You know, the big old. Uh, fan, you see them. So, so you're you free. See to, those, so you're free uh, to movies. talk, but nobody can intercept it. Yeah, exactly. So basically, you see them on uh, any of those uh, military movies. Yep. You know, the guy standing back there with the little what looks like an antique oh, God, uh, headset dude. phone One of my yelling into a it. Or, guy, man. Yeah. I, like, that was, you, you lick it before you stick it. When you put that little, yeah. that, like, put the antenna on, you got to like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the old uh, Mark 17, you know, the, the uh, different called, uh, radios and whatnot. Yeah. And then they came up with some slightly better ones, but the range was different. So, I mean, cool. yeah, we were, we were out there doing, but yeah, we could go, uh, the inter, they have an intercontinental hotel in Kabul. No joke. No from, way. The, from the intercontinental hotel group. It's still there. As of 2018, when I was there last in Kabul, it's a little bit harder to get to and from these days. Mm-hmm. But back then, there was uh, you could go get a proper uh, massage at the mm-hmm. hotel. Um, you could go for lunch or whatever, nice. and they had a swimming pool you could take in. There, they even had a, a lake resort in, wow. just outside of Kabul that had a golf course that we could go. Oh, that's crazy! No, yeah. so, so I mean, so it sounds like you were pretty like ingrained into Kabul and the, and the, and the, you know, the, the local culture a little bit. Like, did you, I mean, did you stand out like a sore thumb or like what, you know, what, um, like tell so me I a mean, little bit the, about this, like for the, the most part, with the Afghans, with the Afghans and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, of course we stood out like sore thumbs, but then again, there was enough Western and ISAF forces that there was no real distinguishment between who was who and you know, who was what. I mean, Contractors, we kind of dressed like each other, but then again, contractor dress looks like British Special Air Service dress. Oh, okay. Um, so you know, and then of course you have your other governmental groups, and they all dress kind of however, mm-hmm. and so it was almost impossible to distinguish one set from another. You sure. could be you could be at a restaurant having, um, you know, having a meal with these people, and they could have been FBI, they could have been. Um, you know, any other lettered soup or they could have been a contractor or they could have been active duty special forces. There was really no way to tell unless you got into the weeds with it. So I everybody mean, wore beards. But as far sure. as me, oddly enough, you uh, you put the right kind of Afghan clothes on and hmm. I have my beard grown out yep. and with the blue eyes and I could look like I'm an Afghan from the Pancher Valley because that oh. Russian influence through the Pancher area. Yeah. 
So did you, um, I mean, did you interact with, um, like, the Afghan people, or was it mostly with the other military units? Oh, no, uh, we were more so Afghans, and then I, my job was intelligence, so I was mm-hmm. a lot more interacting with them. But mm-hmm. um, there's a famous street in Kabul, it's called Chicken Street, basically. Mm-hmm. It's uh, every city um, pretty much has one. It's kind of where you go to get a lot of your tangible goods. Mm-hmm. So we could go down and get trinkets and rugs and everything else and we used to go down to chicken street and you could get a suit fitted uh, i have a i still have them actually in my closet a few of the suits that an afghan tailor put together for me there was a barber that i would go in that would use all the old school hand tools no power mm-hmm. to do trims and stuff wow. and That's, uh, we used to we used to get legit. kids to come with us because the afghans themselves have this kids are off limits in terms of this thing so hmm. Pakistanis and the Iraqis, unfortunately, don't quite have that same threshold when it comes to kids, but the Afghans do. So Mm -hmm. you get the kids that are out trying to make a buck or whatever else, and you give them some money and some food, and then they would go recruit their friends. And then when you wanted to go into a place, they would then crowd the door so that it would keep people that could be or thinking about taking advantage of the situation from doing so because kids were off limits. Yeah. And so, and then some of the elders in the villa, in in the city and stuff that were around, mm-hmm. didn't mind it either because we were giving the kids some sort of value and job. You mm-hmm. know, we were giving them food and they were helping us out. And um, there was a similar thing in Djibouti one, at one point, and I can't get into the why I was there and with who, but um, you pay. <laughs> I want to um, hear that story. Yeah, like, I always want to hear the ones that you can't talk about. Yeah, I know, right. <laughs> But the, the the funny part about the story was is there was a, there was a kid and you paid yeah. him twenty bucks he would come he actually had this he had the racket down he would come he had this big stick and he'd be like I'd be your bodyguard <laughs> all in English you know for a couple nice. a couple few bucks in English you'd tell mm-hmm. you'd be the bodyguard yeah. and then he would have like two of his little friends and they were do and I did protection details for years so I had all these this training on doing the box mm-hmm. and the you know contact rules but what is, little, what is the box so the box uh, we did so depending on tri- there's triangles there's boxes um it's how you set your people up to do protection so we oh, okay. always ran a five-man box okay and so basically so like you had four corners and you had four corners maybe. and then one in the middle standing next to the client that was basically the client director and yep. then so depending on how contact goes, you could close the box and basically create a wall. Got it. But these these three little kids, they had their own little version of a protective detail triangle down nice. with sticks. And then if people got too close, they would kind of... And sometimes they even, with some of the adults in the area, they even had a little like playful ruse where the adults would kind of give them a little... A little reason to practice mm-hmm. so you know and then the, the the little kid that was in charge was like you know don't worry right now and then the adults would kind of come up and play and then they would like beat him back with the sticks and stuff to kind of keep practice it was kind of interesting Some, but uh, enterprising entrepreneurial exactly like very that. entrepreneurial on how they were doing it and in kabul it was that way too there were stores that you want to go in and the kids would go in first and kind of rush all the other people out and again that sounds very privileged of us we were able to have little kids kind of push the rest of the adults out but at the same time like i said it was that weird in-between phase of the community Mm -hmm. where the the adults didn't mind so much because we were spending money in local shops and we were having some we were having interactions with the kids Mm -hmm. so in their own way it allowed it created a sense of 
security for us and a peace of mind for us that we knew there wasn't someone in the store waiting. Right. Gave the kids something to do. Then we were spending money on the local economy. So yeah, we felt that we were giving I mean, back a little bit, a little bit. And you were giving the kids food and other yeah. stuff too. So right, so I they mean, were, so they're, they're getting benefits for their services too. Right? Yeah, and I mean, we we've, we've had um, one of a lot of the guys thought I was crazy, but had a little. Uh, um, well, <laughs> I was kidding. I was but I mean, kidding. so I, there was a lot that I had to do that was by myself. So I was driving around a lot by myself places and there was a, there was this little rig on a rickety cart that was an engine with a set of wheels. And basically you turn it on and you would feed what looked like a sugar cane through it. And then it would come out as a juice or something. Oh yeah, sugarcane juice. Yeah. yeah, no, that's so, that's all over the place. Like in, yeah, so, in India and all. Oh, but no. I didn't realize that sugarcane was something it's that was literally really it's just pressed cane liquid, right? Yeah, and yeah. it. But at the time, I wasn't completely sure there was sugarcane because I still to this day not hundred percent certain that sugarcane grows naturally in Afghanistan. But <laughs> um, in either case, it was just knows, you know not. it was kind of dirty looking <laughs> cart. But I would pull over yeah. and for a dollar or whatever it yeah. was at the time. I would yeah. get one mm-hmm. and you know it's not like the United States where you pop in and they give you a bottle you take with you no, it's, or whatever it's, it's, it's not, just it's a glass not the process stuff well yeah and it's, it's just, just a glass yep. that it you drink it there you they take the, the glass spot, right yep they yep. take mm-hmm. the glass back and they wash it so you know, a lot of guys are like, hey, man, you're kind of it's kind of dirty. kind of don't know. I didn't care. I, I liked it. And the other thing that I really like to this day is Afghan non. You know, you get oh, non yeah. everywhere else. But mm-hmm. the Afghan non to me is some of the best I've ever had. So, like, how is it different from, like, Indian non? So, um, so non, N-A-A-N, right? Yes. Like the flatbread. Yep. Right? Like and, the Indian food that you would, like, take and, like, scoop with the, you know, so, the curries and stuff. Yeah. And so you get uh, Stonefire here in the U.S. makes it is a brand that will make it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a little bit more, I would almost say, even though it's unleavened, it's mm-hmm. almost a little more leavened than Afghan. It's a little bit... Um, a little bit softer, which most people are like bread, you know, soft bread. But mm-hmm. for some reason, the way that whatever it is in the recipe and that slightly more crispness to so it's it, crisp. It's not like a, it's not like a thick, yeah, chew. not, it's not like, quite like a thick chew, mm-hmm. but it's just something about it. You know, I, I could probably deal less with the fact that the way it was delivered is just a dude on a motorbike sticks yeah. it under his arm after right. all day. That's and, what I'm talking about. You know, like, that's and, the real shit. You know, yeah, like, that's and, what I love about traveling. Just diving deep and like, you know, there's millions of people that like eat that, you know, eat stuff like yeah. that or live a certain way. And like, you don't, you can't really understand or appreciate another culture unless you really die. Well, yeah. And so this is a good story, right? So yeah. I, I can, I can say the guy's name now because it doesn't matter, but his name was General Asif. He was mm-hmm. the... Um, he was the general from the Afghan government. I don't know if he was specifically um, Afghan National Police or mm-hmm. if he was Afghan National Army, but he, w- he had a general title, general mm-hmm. uniform, and he was in charge of the Narcotics Interdiction Unit, which mm-hmm. is what we called the va- basically the Afghan version of the DEA. Got it. And he's no longer involved, so anybody that might be listening that thinks that they're getting any intel, he, he's not. Um <laughs> But he used to think that I was so skinny. Mm-hmm. And so every time I'd come you're to his still, office, I mean, I'm... You're, you're a slim, dude. You're but, lengthy. But I, I'm, I'm heavier than people would think, yeah, right? Sure. And so, especially then, I was working out a couple yep. times a day. I was mm-hmm. eating quite a bit. 
you know, when there's nothing else to do, you take your sup- your legal supplements and your protein yep. shakes and your yep. nitrous oxide and you, know, <laughs> you lift at the gym, you know, right. all, do all the bro things. Right. You know? no, of course. All the, all the else to do on boys. Or, yeah. You know, in an area like that. Yeah. Right? And I mean, we had a lot to do, but there's still times when there's downtime. You're right, just sure. in between stuff. So you mm-hmm. work out and you make sure that you're, you're fit to do your yeah, job. Right. I mean, that's that's um, I mean. Yeah. It, it is part yeah. of your job. So you're fit to do your job. But yep. he would always want to give me food. So it was. Mm-hmm. Meatballs and naan and chai and um, general Asif always want to give you yeah food. and so it was goat meatballs and lamb oh, meatballs so, so and uh, and I mean oh, at first so, so. I was in you know because I was still young very still fairly I mean I'd been to a few places yeah. by this point but I was still a little bit of an isolationist when it came to the local cultures at this point because mm-hmm. um, this this happened from the moment I walked into Afghanistan and yeah. right into General Asif's office there he oh, was wow. just trying. And so he's feeding me food that I know came off the, off of the local economy, and yep. it wasn't specifically off of the military base that had, yep. you know, all of Certain the um, what do they call it, the H A C H A A C P or whatever HACCP. it is. Yep, the HACCP, yeah, you know, certain, serve certain safe, health, yeah. health standards. Yeah, stuff, the yeah. health standards and serve safe, and you know, they they definitely didn't have their authorized food handlers permit. <laughs> <Right>. You know, <laughs> so I was a little bit apprehensive, but. Truthfully, I, I got in. I didn't didn't get sick. The only place, the only time I got food poisoning in Afghanistan was when I went to a Lebanese restaurant. That's an actual restaurant put on by Lebanese people. And to this day, I have a hard time with hummus because the only thing I ate that night was yep. hummus because it was just there for a quick meeting. And it made me so sick. They had to banana bag me for like three or four days. I have no idea what that means, but it doesn't sound so, good. So banana bags are. Um, there are basically an IV fluid bag that mm-hmm. l- it's very bright yellow, banana in color almost. Mm-hmm. That's why we call them banana, but it's basically okay. hydration bags. Oh, gotcha. Um, yeah. You know, you, the team medics and stuff, you get way too drunk, mm-hmm. you know, from whatever, and they would banana bag you, and it's a good way to. But I, I needed a banana bag for like <laughs> good three, way to get four your days. head right. <laughs> yeah, and it, w- it was pretty. It was pretty gnarly. You know, it's funny that you talk about the the food poisoning thing, right? Like, like. I was in Asia for almost four years. Yeah. Right? I traveled through Southeast Asia, fucking Beijing, all over China, mm-hmm. South Korea, all over the place. Indonesia, Australia, everywhere, dude. And I dive dive super deep. I get local, mm-hmm. street food, all yeah. that shit. I got food poisoning once in my four time in my four years there. American restaurant. American (laughs) barbecue restaurant. Doesn't the pulled pork sandwich, dude? Yeah, fucked me up. I was fucking like it was literally like hours after I had this, dude. I was just like I could not puke enough. Yeah, just all night long, just dry heaving. It was fucking awful, dude. Well, no, and I'm like you. I and after that point, I dove in. Iraq, yeah. uh, you know, local food everywhere. Uh, in Japan, mm-hmm. um, I ate on the local economy. A lot of the other guys that were there that came later, you know, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, there's McDonald's there. Let's get the McDonald's <laughs> on the way to work. And me, there I was with Fuck the that. with that sticky rice oh, with yeah. like a mayo finish, oh, like a mayo yeah. filling in it or whatever. Yeah, what and I'm then, about. you know, I've got the mm-hmm. rice dishes and yep. I... I like to go to the uh, yakiniku places, which mm-hmm. is you know you cook your own little barbecue yeah, meat. Yeah, yeah, well, they the do lo- that in China too. But yeah, they, and call, they call it um, uh, chuar. Yeah, it's uh, like a be- Beijing dialect. I'm pretty chuar. sure it's yakiniku is is what it is. I'm I might be slightly mm-hmm. incorrect there. It's been a while, but um, so for those who speak Japanese, you know, uh, you know, I'm sorry for that. But <laughs> um, but it was it was really I, I loved it. The sushi. I mean, it got so local that. Um, 
there was a local family that was involved in running one of the little drinky bars we'd go to. Mm. They invited me and a couple of guys back uh, to this barbecue out on the coast. Nice. And we drove out to the coast. Um, I, I still remember one of the pictures. Actually, my buddy that was the Marine, he was one of those guys with us. And we, we took a picture of the cloud that just looked like a phallic symbol one day because one of the Japanese <laughs> one of the Japanese girls pointed it out, and so the van had a, a sunroof. Through the like, yeah, yeah, and they look at the cloud. So they had a sunroof in the van we were all riding in. So I, I stood up through the sunroof because of course I'm the tallest dude in, 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 in the entire van. And, well, and then I, I took a picture of it. So I still have the picture somewhere. But we get to the coast and we're having barbecued eel and everything, and then. Awesome. Uni, which uh, for those that don't know the Uni Japanese word, sea urchin. Sea urchin. So, one of my favorite foods. Yeah, dude. and I so you that. can you can get it at your sushi restaurants, but the best I had ever had was the the little kids were going down into the water, yeah. sticking their hand right in the water, Fresh grabbing it right out, and then we, yep. we were just popping it mm. straight out of right on this uh, remote beach and way north Honshu, Japan, the nice. Honshu Island of Japan. It was awesome. So, so, I mean, so where were you in Japan? I mean, you, you were there for a while, right? Yeah, I was but there for just shy of a year. Okay. So we were, we were on the far north end of Honshu. And so Honshu is what? Like, so Honshu is the main island of Japan. That's the island Tokyo and stuff. Yeah, so like Tokyo the, so the, is on so the southern. So when people think of Japan, like, it's yeah. primarily that island, right? And then there's yep. Osaka, of course. And Hokkaido and up north. Hokkaido in the north, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so Honshu is the main island. And then you've got island. Okinawa, which is just right there. So right. Honshu so like is the main. Way up there. Yeah, so Tokyo's way south, almost mm-hmm. on the complete opposite end of the country. Like from roughly me. how long of a train ride so, would that be or something? So bullet train, it was like two hours and 45 minutes. But bullet car, train's going like... 200, 200, yeah. 200 so by, miles by an car hour. it's like a 12 hour drive yeah okay and that's down the toll road so that's yeah. pretty much nothing else but toll road and freeway right. and it's 12 hours mm-hmm. um, so basically if you were to look on a map and you see where Misawa Air Base is mm-hmm. and then take a ruler and draw a straight line to the other side of the island from them yep. on that same skinny part yeah that's where we were mm-hmm. it was called the uh, Aomori Prefect or Aomori Prefect would be Aomori. more more profi- mm-hmm. precise and we were in a little town called Goshigawara and we had to stay in a Japanese hotel, and let me tell you, I mean, this what one kind had of a Japanese w- hotel. Was this? So, I've heard, I've heard a few, I've heard about a few different types of Japanese yeah, hotels. No, it wasn't any of those, but not, it wasn't not a love hotel. And, well, no, it was not a love hotel, and it was, de- and it was also not one of the, not one of the space pod ones where oh, the bed slides out. I slept slide. in one of those. Yeah, in, so, uh, in Bangkok, I think. Yeah, and yeah, or Saigon. Tokyo, one but so it was still. I mean, it still was a, a room, a desk. Uh, it was a queen-size mattress, but there wasn't really room for much other. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I had to take the chair out for the desk so that the bed was my chair mm-hmm. because, there, there, I mean, there was no point. Oh, you dude, couldn't pull I, the I desk out. I slept in a pod yeah. that literally, like, there's a hallway, and on the left and on the right, it looks like these bunk beds, but they're walled off. And it's literally just this, like, elongated hole yeah. that you slide into, and it's just a bed, and there's a you know, there's a TV at the foot of it, so if you want to watch TV, you can. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing fucking on there anyways. Yeah, and I mean, but I like had you a... literally, you slide in, and then you drop down. It's like a curtain almost. You just drop it down, and yeah. like you just there you go. That's my pot. Kind of like on a navy ship. Yeah, that it's a lot or, like that. You know, um, there's a there's a Netflix uh, original that had. Uh, um, shout out to Netflix. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Netflix, right? But it had uh, Emma Stone and wow, uh, Jonah Hill. 
And it was oh, a, yeah, it was yeah, about yeah. I forgot uh, what it's called, but it was about the it was the um, they, they were they had they the mental were, problems, yeah, right? and, and they, they were going the through a drug study a that drug was study, yeah. it was set in like the seventy. But the doctors in mm-hmm. this show they had basically a drawer that was automated that yeah. slid out. They laid in it and it slid back into yeah, the wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Tokyo actually has some legit hotels that are sort of like that. Um, nice. But no, this was but it was still tiny. I probably it was yeah. probably. It was probably less than 100 square feet hmm. for a hotel room, bathroom, Jeez. shower, you know, whole nine yards. Like but just the essentials. Yeah, just, <laughs> just enough space for the essentials. Yeah, so that's where that we lived in that for out of that hotel for like six and a half, seven months. Nice. Um, but yeah, I went oh, out in the nice. local economy. I'd probably get tired of that. You know, a little cabin fever or something. But Yeah, but I mean, it could be worse. Yeah, it could I, know, be, for sure. I, I could be in a hooch in uh, yeah. Iraq where exactly. it's basically just a... Uh, shipping in a small shipping container yeah. turned into a, a bedroom that mm-hmm. then I had to walk to a shower block and then concrete T walls everywhere. Yeah. You know, could be worse. <laughs> at least, uh, at least the people in Japan were uh, nice. They had, a, they had an American Harley bar in Goshigawara of all places. Really? Yeah, they hadn't really seen white people that frequently or foreigners of any kind for that matter up in that area for a long time really so but they still had an american harley bar with all these like american harley bar fans in this that's like weird, remote dude. area of japan i mean it's still city still urban yeah. but it i mean it's more like the difference between being in new york city and then being in like charlotte north carolina <laughs> charlotte north carolina charlotte, yeah. you know still urban enough but nothing like the urban density that you get out of like new york city or whatever so it's like a third or fourth tier city or something like that yeah i mean it it's uh it was probably i think aomori prefect aomori the city is the largest goshigawara might have been the second largest Mm, in that prefect there Mm -hmm. um maybe but i mean still all in all good time i miss the food the so, authentic food from Japan. Yeah, for sure. Don't get me wrong. Oh, dude, I, I no, love my, lots my, of Asian dude, food. My Japan Japanese, time yeah. ruined sushi for me anywhere else. Yeah, too, uh, there's right? a couple of places in Seattle. Things, and, of course. Robin I mean, and like Seattle's that. awesome because mm-hmm. we've got the ports here and the seafood's it's also so close. a big Japanese culture yeah, here. Right? Yes, a lot of people, uh, a lot of Japanese have moved to Seattle. Well, and you know? so the city of Tacoma, they have, sis- they have a sister city that's mm-hmm. out of Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and though, for those that don't know, uh, Tacoma is 30 miles south of Seattle, mm-hmm. so they've got a sister, a sister city. There's even a, a Japanese garden along the waterfront mm-hmm. down in, in Tacoma nice. that has a, an actual pagoda that's down there that you can rent out for events and stuff. Oh, so, cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. You walk down there and they tell you about the sister cities. But mm-hmm. So the food was amazing. Yep. Um, the people are, are really nice, and it's something that a lot of people don't understand is they're even very, and I know this is going to cause some controversy, but what the hell, let's wade into it. Um, Proper Japanese culture is some of the most politely racist people on the planet. Oh, for sure. I mean, they put manners above everything, right? Yeah. When they're learning in school and and stuff, it's manners. It's that racist thing that I'm worried that people are going to be so, um, like, how can you be politely racist? And I'll put it to you this way. So, the Japanese word for foreigners, gaijin, mm-hmm. um, and they have a sign on establishments that uh, if you can read, which always cracked me up, if you can read um, Japanese, it mm-hmm. says no foreigners, no gaijin on yep. this on the sticker, but it doesn't say it in any other language. Right. So <laughs> you you learn by accident. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, if they put mm. it in a couple of languages, uh, you know, maybe um, English, Spanish, and mm-hmm. you know. Uh, pick another 
um, very, fairly common European language sure. that's highly spoken or something. Yeah, and something. and then yeah. maybe they would have less of it. But it's this yellow sticker. Uh, looks like a policeman. He's got his hand up in a red circle with a hand through it. Basically, no foreigners allowed. Mm. But of course, when you can't read Japanese, you don't know what the sticker means. Yeah. It's like, okay, I don't know. Maybe it means no bad behavior because <laughs> it's, it's kind of defeats the purpose. Um, yeah, just a little bit, right? So don't really know. And you walk into a place. But then I went into a grocery store of mm-hmm. all places. It wasn't like a bar. It wasn't this. It was a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And a very polite Japanese man walked over in a suit and bowed. And then very crisp English, I'm sorry, sir, this establishment is for Japanese only. Might wow. I suggest this other grocery store? Wow. So, so because very, I was very, foreign. Uh, respectful. Yes. And, you know, excellent manners. Yes. But the manners like, were the great. I'm, well, and it was, it was one of those things. It was like, so, bizarre. and again, I'm, I'm Caucasian, you know, mm-hmm. as we've well discussed. Mm-hmm. And I, I've. I lived in the South for a while, yeah. and but coming from Washington State, I, I kind of had a much different view on where I grew up on racism. Yeah. People were people. were people. We grew right. up with kids that it didn't matter what color we were. We all hung out. And does that mean that they didn't, that those kids didn't run into anything? Probably not. I'm sure that they did. But in terms of the way that we all grew up together, you were just Johnny or Jill or Bob or whatever your name happened to be. Mm-hmm. Um more and, about what's on your mind and what's in your heart. Than yeah, else, we, you know? we, we all kind of just looked out for each other. I got to the South and I got to see it a lot differently. But in Japan, it was interesting. They, the guy said it mm-hmm. and I walked out and it took me a full three or four minutes to, like for, process to, to, to be like, wait a minute. I just got kicked out of a place because I'm not, I'm not Japanese. Yeah. It's because I'm foreign to the Japanese culture. Uh-huh. And then I'm like, but it was so polite. I'm like, yeah. I can't even be mad about it. <laughs> Yeah. Like it was the most surreal thing in the world. And I'm not saying that that equates to anything what some of the other people have done. But that's what I mean when I say they're the most politely racist people. Yeah. They will tell you that an establishment is for locals only or no foreigners allowed in these establishments. But they do it in such a way that, at least for me, it took a full five minutes before I realized what exactly had happened. And I mean... I, ho- I harbor no ill will, and again, that sure, might be coming from a point of privilege, but well, I still an enjoyed... anecdote, you know? Yeah, like, and I st- but I still enjoyed being in the culture. They were still very polite, and mm. I still enjoy the food, and we did make friends, and yeah. we, we hung out with all kinds of them, but, did, I mean, it was still just an odd... It was, it was, it was only within a 20, 30 minutes yeah. of actually being in town that this happened, and then, of course, we... We learned it, but then we ended up becoming, uh, me and two other guys, we ended up finding our own little family that we became such good friends with, that there were places we could go with them Mm -hmm. because we were with them that we were allowed. But that's the thing, dude, right? Like, I mean, my time in China, like Chinese are, it's 99.99% Han, not even like other ethnic minorities, right? There's like 50 something other ethnic minorities in China, but they're like, 0.001% 0.001% of the entire population. Well, I mean, 0.001% of the Chinese population is still a lot of people. Well, though. right, right. But, <laughs> I mean, there's, to, there's, to be fair. Right, but know? I mean, you know, like like Chinese have, their, their word for foreigner is la wai, which means old outsider. Yeah. Right? And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a similar thing in a sense. I mean, there's not necessarily, there are some places that are Chinese only. Kind of like the, um, the special KTV places um but if you but the, but the key like to really dive into those 
those aspects of the culture to kind of understand some of this stuff is really to like become friends with these local people yeah. right so like you know so like you're saying you know you're getting in good with this family you know um, that probably really opened up a lot of the Japanese culture that a lot of people might not have um, had the experience of well it definitely did the there because in, there was initially 15 of us that landed in Japan and we were actually oddly enough the first foreign armed civilians in Japan since World War II. So you guys had guns. You had weapons. When we were at the specific facility, we uh-huh. did. We didn't carry uh-huh. them around in town. They yeah, were like an open carry thing. I mean, Japan's no. a pretty peaceful place. Yeah, <laughs> it, but it was, uh, you know, there was an armory. They went into the armory, yeah. you know, and they never saw the light of day otherwise. I huh. mean, the reality is, too, even though we were under a status of forces agreement internally, none of us ever wanted to fire it. Right. It because we still weren't sure that the status of forces agreement mm-hmm. would be upheld if we yeah. ever had to, but mm-hmm. they were there. But we, there were 15 of us initially to do kind of the forward setup for the rest of us, and then another 50 or 60 people showed up for handling all the day to day, which is about the time when I started transitioning out. But even out of those first 15, there were places that me and these other two guys were able to go within that prefect that the rest of them weren't because they were still playing a bit isolationist. And that kind of brings up the other thing that Americans, we have a tendency to do is we tend to believe in universalism. Right. Our beliefs, our structures, our moral judgments on things are universally correct. But you know that's that's the and, construct, man. Like well, I can't talk it, about I can't talk about that enough, dude. Like everybody that's they're in their bubble, you know, like there's so few Americans that even have their passport. Right. Well, yeah, and, and, then, and then of that small percentage, it's like twenty, maybe thirty percent at this point because of the Mexico, Canada stuff. You need it, but you know, even of the people that have a passport, um, there's a very small percentage of Americans that actually travel outside of the quote unquote safe places. Talking well, Mexico, Canada, the Caribbean, Western Europe. Yeah. Right. I so, mean, so a lot of Americans, and you know, I love America. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. we both served. Right. That sort of thing. Um, but a lot of Americans think that America is the be all end all and there's nothing else outside of it. Well, and it, I mean, it happens and I've got, of course. um, and you get that in other countries too, but like, like yeah, of course. Know. But at the same time, I mean, the, the French are particularly the Parisians are very interesting about this, right? They talk about American universalism and sure. American superiority right. and all of that. But then. I, I've spoke French most of my life these days. It is rusty as all get out. Mm-hmm. And, but the Parisians, you try uh, most other cultures. Like I go to Kenya and my Swahili is also equally terrible anymore. But I mean, but the fact I can that get you just even yeah. mentioning that you, that you have Swahili. Like, it's yeah. Kind of, I mean, and it's, it's, it's words and you, you speak with them and you use their words and stuff. Right. And even if you butcher it a little bit, there's this, um, there's, there's this uh, behavior where it's they like it. They're supportive of it. They're supportive, yeah. and they, they want you to help you. The Parisians, yeah. when you start speaking French, and if it's too terrible for their that offends their mm-hmm. poor ears, they basically straight up will tell you, I speak right. English, stop stop butchering my language, which, right. which is an interesting dissonance in their behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Accept the world for who they are. Um, yeah. Be more, you know, yeah. don't be American, but don't. But come to my country and don't speak my language because you suck at it, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, Quebec it, is like that too. Yeah, it's very, yeah. it's very interesting in these things. But like I said, we we have a tendency as Americans, we believe in a lot of universalism when mm-hmm. it comes to things. We are universally correct in this. We are morally universally correct, and that universalism 
Is there a red line within the morality that we generally accept as a society that makes us a cohesive society? Sure. But at the same time, we allow that universalism to limit us in our interactions with other people. Absolutely. And when we, when we limit them, we end up missing things. A, mm-hmm. a case in point was I was talking um, with another gentleman on one of his podcasts. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Matt Ward and the Disruptors. But um, Shout out. Yeah, he. Uh, yeah. we were talking about this when it comes to Saudi Arabia and allies and moral allies versus incentive allies. And the idea is, is that, yes, there are some moral grounds that Saudi Arabia and the United mm-hmm. States fundamentally disagree with. But does that mean that acting out of universalism that we have this hard red line on that universal morality thing that if they don't believe in in our morality and our thing that that means that we should completely write them off as not having value as an ally at all and i think that that general notion even though that's the extreme case in allies and wars we go to other countries even as tourists and that universalism ends up kind of ruling how we go see the culture. Um, You you know, you go to Ireland and then you Mm. see everything based on that lens of universalism in the United States. Well, they don't do this. Their hotels aren't set up like this. I'm not enjoying myself because the food isn't what I'm, you know, it, imagine going to, imagine going to China and being a, like a steak and potatoes person. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to, if you can find it, you're going to go broke. Well, not just that, but the steaks, there are shit, dude. Well, yeah. And thin and they're overcooked. (laughs) Or if you can find a good one, I mean, they're still, they're going to, charge you an astronomical price for it i mean it's just it's one of those things Mm -hmm. i mean south africa is even the same way right um i was in south africa in johannesburg in 2017 Mm -hmm. and you go to mandela square which is this gorgeous mall which by the way the united states doesn't know how to do malls right south africa knows how to do some malls um they're these gorgeous they are the places to go you got your shopping your your fine dining, your hmm. everything that you—that's kind of those cool things—are all done at these shopping malls. But hmm. so we're at Mandela Square, and there's these awesome restaurants. There's this little Thai place that's upstairs, hmm. has a great view of the courtyard, and they serve this dish that they called the Angry Duck. Delicious, right? But it definitely made your stomach a little angry because of how spicy <laughs> it was. But phenomenal. But then right down down in there, there's the. Um, Trump Steakhouse, not actually related to the Trump family at all. Hmm. In 2017, you know, it was right during that whole thing with yep. Trump going on, and it just happened. But the steak, it wasn't from what you're used to in the United States, but that didn't mean that it wasn't good because right. you you take it for what it is rather than that universal belief of what it should well, be. Well, and it's kind of like, like, you know, speaking of food and meats, it kind of reminds me of, like, bacon. Mm-hmm. You know, like, American bacon cured it's kind of sweet and salty mm-hmm. and like, oh my god dude i could have killed for american bacon when i was in asia dude because it, yeah. it's not you can't get it there no you can't get it it's just it's almost it's like borderline just ham it's yeah. like ham strips yeah. <laughs> you know like you can't it's, you it's can't, not even canadian bacon no it's not like you can't get it crispy <laughs> like you heat it up but it doesn't like burn it doesn't get crispy it's yeah, just like it, floppy it's just like, like, yeah it's just limp <laughs> just yeah. like warm ham yeah <laughs> uncured there's no honey no hickory smoke none yep. of it dude oh no uh, yeah it's not even great you, like the first thing i did when i got back to the states i'm like bacon yeah you're lucky you're, you're lucky if you get brined if, right. if that ham is brined in asia yeah um and then you know and i mean well even the brits they do mm-hmm. 
they do that kind of thing a little bit different. Yeah. Breakfast food to the Brits. I mean, <coughs> haggis. Oh, a full, a full I mean, English? Haggis? Oh, I mean, haggis, come dude. On, really? Haggis is legit, though, dude. Well, I mean, it can be. I mean, but if, if, you, if you hear the description and you know actually what it is, like some people are like, they don't have the stomach for it, but like, yeah. fucking or, try or it. Or blood awesome. sausage, too. Most people it. are, yeah. But again, um, for most people, they're yeah. like, I don't even know how to do this. And right. that that's they're kind like of blood. the... Yeah. Haggis is sheep sheep stomach. What? Yeah. How and can I possibly eat deep fried sheep stomach? Yeah, and, and I mean like, that's the thing. Is you go, man, there's you a go reason into this a dish and for it. You, know? you miss out on so much, exactly. and that's so one of the. I mean, a good another good story that you miss out if you just don't is uh, in Kenya. I go to Nairobi from time mm-hmm. to time, and they have this huge swap meat style. Like, I mean, just acres yeah. of swap meat style market. It's called mm-hmm. the market at Gikomba. And I go there by myself. And I stand out like a sore thumb. Trust me, like <laughs> a sore thumb. I Good am imagine. a six foot white dude with a bald head that's got a ginger beard. And a ginger face. And a ginger honest. face. <laughs> and so, yes, there are some tall Kenyan tribes. But, but for the most part in Nairobi, they are not... That's not predominantly um, populated by that those tribes. It's right. pre- predominantly from some of the tribes that have. Um, they're still tall compared to some, but for me, they're still a little shorter. So mm-hmm. I'm easily a head taller than most people. So you can yeah. see me for miles away in this market because it's pretty much locals. Yeah. But you can go and you can find the stuff that were the Nikes that were made in China, shipped to the United States. Mm-hmm. Didn't sell. Went to Home Goods or the, the championship shirts for the teams yeah. that lost. Or, like that. or yeah, or you go and they're the Air Jordans that didn't sell at yeah. uh, TJ Maxx either. Mm-hmm. And then they end up making their way in the global economy yep. to these markets in just huge bags mm-hmm. in Nairobi. So occasionally I can find some cool stuff that you know my shape. kid might like, or you know might mm-hmm. be a good gift for someone that are inexpensive. And I'm there, and so I go and. Even the what's what they call in Kenya the Kenyan cowboys, which are the native-born Kenyans that are Caucasian. So their family mm. migrated from um, Europe years and years ago yeah. during part of the colonial, whether they're British or Dutch or whatever else. Mm. And but they're they're natural-born Kenyan citizens for generations at this point. But they're they're getting fewer and fewer of them. But they're called the Kenyan cowboys, mm. and they're like, well, even there who are local to to Nairobi are like, what are you doing? That's just crazy. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, like when you how, get like, robbed. How, like, or, how cowboy are they, though? Are they wearing, like, cowboy hats and, like... No, and, and, like, I mean, uh, they're they're wearing... Chaps and stuff like that? Because that's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm thinking they're walking around with... No, they're, they're wearing <laughs> safari clothes. And shit. You know, safari clothes, oh, okay. or they're wearing, you know, jeans and T-shirts, just mm. like anyone else. But, I mean, they think I'm crazy for going to this market. And I'm like, why? Well, you might get robbed. Well, two things. One, I stand out like a sore, th- uh, sore thumb. So the... Maasai, which is one of the tribes in um, Kenya that can actually carry weapons, they mm. they carry these billy clubs and they kind of keep they kind of enforce the peace there. Mm. One, they know I'm there because it's not like they don't see me. Right. Um, it's not like they can't find me. Mm. And two, I mean, yeah, I might You're get a, a guy. Killer. Well, they might try to pickpocket me. Big deal. Yeah. So you know what I do? I don't put my money where I can get pickpocketed. Exactly. I mean, it, it's that simple. And mm. then I go talk to people and. I'm polite to the people that are there, and I interact with them, and I buy things. And, you know, they, it creates this thing where people, 
you get what you give, right? Exactly. And so yeah. if you go with so an ad, and I, I say this to some people that, uh, to some friends who are from New Mexico, right? Yeah. They, when they first came up to Seattle, they're like, I can't believe the, the attitude of the people here because they're so much politer than what we were told by some of our friends. And mm. again, I'm very, I'm kind of disparaging on New Mexico here, but th- when I first moved there from here, the people that I met there had really bad attitudes mm-hmm. about everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, in New Mexico. Yeah, they cut yeah. you off. They, they stand in the way and talk. You say, excuse me, they ignore you. Oh, yeah. um, they, um, I, had a, China. I had a guy that, when I, we were there for like four hours and we're in a double turn lane. Mm-hmm. And as we're turning, this guy drifts over the turn line Mm -hmm. and nearly runs into me i tap my horn once nothing Mm -hmm. super aggressive just hey i'm right here Mm -hmm. he speeds up the road like 150 yards pulls his car sideways in the middle of the road to try to block the road like he wants to pick a fight i'm like i can't believe it good lord and so his friend if if they came to this town with that attitude Mm -hmm. you get what you give right exactly man and so he came he's super friendly to people Mm -hmm. he's wearing a new england patriots hat because he's a New England Patriots fan. Mm-hmm. He's finding people all over, I mean, the middle of the 12s town, you know, the 12th mm-hmm. man town. And he's finding people who are like, so hey, nice. man, like your hat. And let's talk Patriots. And he's like, I didn't expect this. I expected yeah. something different. And that's because. Well, you go to Boston yeah. with like a Yankees hat or something. Dude, yeah. they will shit on you. Well, exactly. All over the place. And, and so it's, you get what you give a lot of times, right? Yeah. And whether it's Kenya, Namibia, Afghanistan, you know, you. You get what you give. Yep. I still have friends from the days back in Afghanistan, 0405. One, a couple of them are here now. We brought mm. them here, nice. which is another atrocity in and of itself. Not that we brought them here, but how we treated them after we brought them here. But that's a story for another day. But, mm. um, you know, I've got friends that uh, in Kenya still that I keep in touch with. And one of the guys that I always employ to help me out, he's coastal Arab, which means mm. he's, you know, he's Muslim. And... Mm. He and I have some differing opinions on things, but the things that you sure. learn when you talk to people. So the coastal Arabs in Kenya are a bit more laid back. He's married to a Yemeni girl who's mm. very um, conservative mm. in terms of that. So she still actually wears she more does the burqa and all that. She doesn't go full full burqa face, mm. you know. So not the full outfit, but the hijab, it, like the, yeah, part, the hijab mm. at least. It mm. doesn't necessarily cover the face. Yep. Then goes all the way down to the ankles, and one one time, and I won't get him in any trouble because I'm so I won't mention his name. But That's we're fine. we're having a we're driving and we're chatting and we're talking about these things, and he's like, yeah, it, like I don't want her to wear these things. He's like, she's super she sexy. Yeah. yeah, she's like, she's super sexy. I like to see her. He's mm-hmm. like, it dry, and then of course because I don't get to see it all the time, and her ankle shows, and it actually gets like <laughs> exciting. You're like, Girl, you got the hottest ankle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he's making these jokes. and But if you believe in that universalism thing, yeah, that exactly. it, it would be fundamentally impossible for right. me and this Arab Muslim kid to have these kinds of conversations because... You know we don't we don't know how to do it, but that's what I do. I get to a town and I talk to people. That's just, but, that's, but that's, that's how what you gotta I do, do man. Yeah. You know, like nothing's black and white, dude. You can't no. just like you can't just say, oh, they're Muslim, they're terrorist, or what, or or judge them based on the clothes that they wear, or whatever else. Like you get to know these people, and they've they're 
just as fucking funny as the next person, right? Like, yeah, sure. If they're making I mean, these ankle jokes or whatever. Like, you get to know people and level with them, you know? Sure, you may have a difference of certain opinions or yeah, beliefs or whatever else, but that's what makes stuff cool. Like, that's now, what makes the interesting, you know, the conversations and all that shit. You know? But yeah, but then at the same time, too, the the other side of that coin is you can't always fault people fault people for at least being a little suspicious at first right? oh sure you know course. but the, we I mean, do as americans but, but, again but, people but, don't align with us and so we get mad at you for being suspicious exactly. there is human brains are nothing more i mean there's a reason our computers that work the way that they do the way mm-hmm. that we have file storage mm-hmm. and the way that we correlate files to names and full and those folders and how everything comes down to a certain thing it's because we program computers based on the way that our own brain thinks so mm-hmm. Information is correlated at first for a reason, mm-hmm. and then you, you modify that correlation as you get more data. It's mm-hmm. it's like this thing that's going on in today's world where we're now going back and we're second-guessing everything from the Peanuts cartoons mm-hmm. to um, what a politician said right. in 1950. Or, or like and these yearbooks that go back like 30, 40 years. Yeah, whatever, and, you know, and like, again, yes, I are mean, there things that people said that are under today's lens bad or even back then were they not treating people the way that they should have been treated yes yeah, but you can't you also have to allow but human, people to learn and grow well and, exactly you know, and humans like that, right? humans like computers like machine learning right mm-hmm. how do we train our machines to learn we give them data because yep. that's what that's what humans do we learn by data mm-hmm. so you may and humans we make the best decision we can at the time we did it with the data that we had on hand mm-hmm. it, it's no different than you know, without it being related to politics or people, mm-hmm. people made bad decisions in their careers, yep. right? But they thought it was the best decision at the time with the data they had. Or, and then, or it was a or, decision. Like well, sometimes and it was you decision, say stupid shit and well, it's just yeah, like, yeah. Not, you don't think it's going to go anywhere. You know, and it's not well, trying exactly. to be like insulting to anybody. You're just bullshitting, right? Well, yeah, like, you, say, you say something and at the time in the data, it was it didn't seem... And then in retrospect, you're like, okay, maybe maybe, maybe I shouldn't or maybe I, I mean, have We have an data. expression for that. Well, yeah. Sticking your foot in your mouth, right? Well, yeah. or And also, there's well. also a reason that they say that hindsight is 2020, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You have more data at that point. Mm-hmm. Oh. Exactly. Uh, um, had I known where things would have been with this decision or this variable... I might have made a slightly different decision, but guess what? You didn't have that variable at the time. Mm -hmm. You were making decisions based on that. So we have to be careful that we allow ourselves the ability to learn. And then Mm -hmm. we, we also allow people to learn. We don't hold them to this expectation that from 30 years ago, you were this person and we're holding you to that person now because that gives you no incentive to learn. Right. And we want people to be learning. Well, and you know, and, to, and to I mean, honest, I learned. Like, I mean, people I, I should was be learning guy. and growing and evolving every day, right? Like yeah. every single person's unique. We're 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 a collection of our own uh, moments, our experiences, and how we respond to those things, right? And every day, you've got a new set of those that you add to who you are. Yeah. So you know, whereas you know, you may have been this person in Japan so many years ago. You know, I, I mean, was a legend in Japan. I don't know what you're talking about. I want to hear this, but <laughs> but I want to hear about your legendary story. But you know, I want to hear that shit. But what I'm saying is like, that's still a part of you, right? Yeah, of course. But to who you are today is, you know, is is it probably has shifted a little bit. Oh, it you know it, it does. And if you don't if you don't shift, if you're the same person today that you were 30 years ago, you're not living, bro. Yeah, you're you're missing out mm-hmm. on so much to do with life. I mean. 
I, I've made, uh, I've been a lot of things in my day. I mean, I'm a bit of a, and again, not to be disparaging to people who might think so, but I'm, I'm a bit of a gypsy in that yeah. I've done a little bit of a lot of things and I, I always just adapt and I change and it's a bit of a hustle. Yep. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's also a skill that I think that not enough people have is yeah. um, we define ourselves by certain things and then we end up missing out on so many. So if, much, man. I mean... I never for the life of me would have expected I'd be carrying a parade float down the middle of a street in Wayne North Japan, which is oh, how I became oh, oh, a legend. Hold, hold, hold on a second. Hold on. You just fucking <laughs> brushed right through that thing. I want to hear, like, what are you talking about? Like, explain this to me. So, so again, we're in Goshaguar and we made friends with this family, mm-hmm. me and Caleb and David. Mm-hmm. And we went to the barbecue and all that stuff. Well... Also, in the um, bar districts in Japan at night, they've got juveniles, younger, I don't know how old they are because it's really hard to tell when Japanese, when the Japanese culture is younger. Asians don't age very yeah, much. Yeah, it's, it's basically they're 25 until they're 85. Until they're 80, right? Uh, exactly. I mean, and that's, and again. But they know it too. Well, yeah, of course <laughs> they do. And, and that's, again, some people might say, oh, that's being racist. No, that, no that's not. That's commenting on what actually happens and, and recognizing the humor in it, right? Exactly. I mean. <laughs> There are, uh, it, they, they do, they're 25 until they're 80. Yes. So this kid could have been 17, he could have been 24, I have no way of knowing. Yep. But his name was Yuki. He was one of the kids that was basically paid to kind of make sure that, you know, that politeness and that mm-hmm. saving face happened. You know, you don't be overly drunk in public, you don't get into fights in right. public. And so they had these kids whose job was to get you off the street. So Yuki was one of these guys. And... Um, he was a, a he was a heavier set Japanese guy, very jovial, laughing all the time, nice. yep. you know, and just had a, had a smile on his face all of the time. And I've got a good picture that like memorializes that that behavior of him as a person. It was mm. a perfect photo. So anyway, we're we get invited down to the street parade by the by the family that mm. runs the drinking bar, and we're just sitting there on the street, just the three of us with the. Japanese so three, family so and three people. Gaijin or yeah, you know, foreigners. Yeah, three foreigners. Yeah, I mean, the o- like there's very others. Few foreigners. Yeah, there's others of the group that are there because mm-hmm. it's not far from the hotel. Yep. But there's three of us sitting with. Uh, actually, it was four of us. Our our SF medic doc was mm-hmm. with us, cool. and we were just sitting there all enjoying it, watching them. And in Japan, at least way North Japan, they still carry their parade floats. Big they long carry them. Yeah, Wait. so they're on. Lo- so basically, think of the old school so, way. So they're that not you being pulled by like a truck or something. No, and this it's not, is, and it's not the balloon. No, this it, is like. This is like. Think of it when you see if you've ever seen any of the old um, movies or whatever where the emperor is being carried in the with like a bamboo like, stick or yeah, something it's like, a, yeah they're like carrying thrown with a bamboo stick and or yeah or, or like a really big tree log or whatever okay, so yeah, 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 basically sure. you have these tree logs that are strung and then you have the float itself whatever it's designed in the dragon or whatever mm-hmm. this one that had these huge drums and people were banging it yeah. are set in the center and then of course depending on how heavy they are will depend on how many of the japanese people are actually carrying it it can be a couple few it can be quite a lot of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that traditionally the people carrying are wearing a white um outfit that sort of looks like a kimono mm-hmm. um and they carry it and so anyway and then 
they carry it for so long and then they set it down because it gets heavy and they've got little somebody's running along with these little um, what looks like jacks that then they set the logs on and it holds mm. it there mm. and then a little bit of a performance and oh, then cool. it's however long and then you pick up move and it mm. so a parade of a few miles takes a lot longer than in the U.S. because yeah, we're not sure. just towing them behind a, a you know a F two fifty or whatever. Right. Um, but we shout out to Ford. Yeah, shout out to <laughs> Ford. Hopefully they'll give you an endorsement here. Here we go. Let's make it happen. <laughs> um, of course, I used F two fifty when my dad worked for General Motors. He's gonna be mad if he hears this. But um, you know, Dad, GM two. I own a yep. GM, so shout there we go. GM. Shout out to GM, I'm a Michigan so, boy. Shout out yep. to the big three. Yeah, so we'll just uh, we'll 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 make them all equal, so none of them can be mad um, or require you to pay a royalty or some right. stupid crap. But anyway, I'll just bleep it out if I have to. I don't care. Shout out to <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You get a cease and desist letter. Stop using our name. So anyway, so Yuki's per, uh, Yuki's float comes, and of course we can see him coming for miles, just because he's got a his personality is just enormous. And so he sees us, and then he insists that we come out there, and we're of course trying to say no, 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 it's fine. But Yuki's just he, he's so contagious that we just get up and decide to come out there yeah, and hang out with him. Yeah. And before we know it, he's convincing us to start carrying this parade float. Oh, that's great. And it, of course, it looks hilarious because mm-hmm. it, it's just uh, at this point is me, Caleb and David. And mm-hmm. Caleb and David are about the same Height, which yeah, I'm so like six foot or so. No, they're not even that. They're like five, six, oh, okay. five, seven. Oh, oh, oh okay. So, um, and so, so you're, for me, so you're towering over yeah, them. so me, yeah, I'm so towering little, over them, and they're closer. They're closer to the height of the Japanese men that are carrying this parade float. So for me, they put me in the front, and mm. it's this ridiculous thing because so I'm either standing fully upright yep. and carrying more of the weight that way, or I'm kind of squatting, holding it with my hands yep. so that I'm not having to carry as much of the weight. Yeah, so so that reminds me of like um, like in boot camp in the Marines, like we yeah. do these log exercises, yeah, exactly. right? And like you know, so, so it's a freaking telephone pole, right? Yeah, like exactly. literally, the it's literally a telephone pole, and, and you got like ten or twenty guys the or whatever. Tall guys get screwed, and whoever's yeah. the tall one gets screwed always because that. You know, because they're either like crouching and it's uncomfortable that way, or they're carrying more of the weight because more they're weight standing straight else. up. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of that, and I'm, I'm probably exaggerating because at this I lost track because it was mid afternoon when mm-hmm. we started, and then it got dark by the time we got to the little drop off point. Right. But I swear it must have been like three and a half, four miles that we carried this thing. Wow. Stopping every so often doing yep. the dance, but it ended up because you know that part of Japan hadn't seen a lot of foreigners to begin with Mm -hmm. to then have three white dudes, pasty (laughs) ass white dudes. I mean, I'm talking pasty (laughs) ass. I'm talking pasty. So pasty to the point where with, you know, my team called all the guys called me red. Renzo, Renzo. He spends like five minutes on the beach and he's burnt. Well, yeah, it doesn't even need to be five minutes. You know, I need, you know, I need SPF 5,000 to go out in the sun. But, but, but so, but the fun. So the reason I'm saying pasty is because my buddy Caleb, I'm already pasty enough to where yeah. they call me red. This dude, we called him UV for ultraviolet, because and how this story came was before we deployed to Japan. We're at training in Moyoc, North Carolina, which is where Blackwater headquarters were, and the weekend before we're supposed to actually leave to Japan, we go out to the to hit the bars and stuff in Norfolk, which is. 
the closest kind of bar town, which, you know, that's a Navy town as well. Uh, so Virginia they've got, or North Carolina? In, in Virginia. Oh, okay. So it's North, it's, so technically Moyoc, North Carolina is right mm-hmm. across the border from yeah, okay, Virginia. So yeah. Virginia Beach, uh, Norfolk, all right there. So we go out into that mm-hmm. area to go um, to the bars because that's where all the Navy guys go. Yeah. And one thing about Navy guys is we can always find the best places to find dates, food, and drinks in any in any country that we're in. Those are the things. Whatever you're about. into when it comes to those, we can we somehow like have a nose for it. There we go. Like a bloodhound, we can yeah. smell it out, you know. You um go. so we go out and we go to this club and you know, Caleb's a shorter dude. And we can't really see him out on the dance floor, and there's three of us, and we all of us have a nickname by this point, but Caleb doesn't. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we're like, there he is. And we see this dude and I wish you could see, if I had a, if there was a camera here, I wish you could see me reenact this because it was the funniest thing. But you see these shoulders of people kind of moving with the music. And then all of a sudden you see this, you see these two fists like pump up in the air above the shoulders. And then you see this like glowing white head from the black light pop up between the shoulders and then disappear. And he's moving between the crowds, almost, <laughs> almost like a bot, like a fishing bobber on a wave in a lake. When you see the ripples in the lake, and you, you can see the bobber, and then it ducks down between the ripple, and then it pops back up. And so he's he is so white and so nearly see through that he the black light makes his entire body glow. Uh, and, and he's probably gonna be so he's probably gonna be Shout so embarrassed. To Caleb. Yeah. UV. He he just moved back to Washington not that long ago. So there's there's a good chance he's gonna hear this story. And his wife, who probably's never really heard this story done like, justice. Makes sense. Yeah, she well, either that or she's gonna be like, she's heard all these stories and now she hears one from one of the other guys, right? Uh, that's funny. Um, so anyway, but yeah, so that's why I'm saying pasty. So we, we stand out in this crowd in Japan, right? And so here we are carrying it. It becomes national news. I, we're down in Tokyo one night because we're getting ready to go climb Mount Fuji, which is another amazing thing that you need so, to do. Wait, so, so it's national news, like what, because of the parade or because there are these gaijin for white pasty white foreigners so partaking. The par- so the parade itself probably was already there was already news crews there mm-hmm. but then the story became two things right so at the time and it's well publicized now at this point yeah. but the u.s government was um putting a um over the horizon radar in north japan as part of a project with the missile defense agency and we've got a couple of others and it's called the x-band radar mm-hmm. and the Japanese, they call it X-Bando, and that's because there wasn't really a name for it. It's the fanatic. Yeah, X-Bando radar. Um, and so the story was, and I assume, because again, my Japanese is only enough to say hello, thank you, very nice things. And the way the Japanese language is as well, there is a masculine version of the language and there's a feminine version. Well, there's version also where, like four levels well, of, there, yeah, and formality and stuff. Well, there, yeah, it's like five or six separate languages, but... Yeah. If you learn to speak from a woman, they can tell, a native speaker can tell, or if you learn to speak as a man, you can tell. And men culturally learn to speak from men and women from women. I learned how to speak from a girl, go figure. Yeah, um, so there's word, yeah. <laughs> so so there's, there's word choices that I would use, but mm-hmm. there was things that I just didn't recognize, but then all of a sudden I'm in Tokyo, we're hanging out with some people for dinner mm-hmm. and getting, cause we're doing Mount Fuji the next day. And there, all I hear is expando radar and Gai Jing. That's the only thing that really made out. Mm-hmm. And I look up and there's a 
there's a little short video clip of the three of us carrying it. <laughs> and then I assume that they're also mentioning that it's these three Gaijin foreigners that are part of the Expando radar program. Mm. And I'm assuming that's why they were related and then showing this. But in either case, that's the that's the story about how uh, me and two other guys became a legend in Japan way back in the day in like 05, 06. But... Nice covert operation, buddy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't supposed to be covert. We were, I, I guess so. I mean, that t- that specifically wasn't supposed to be covert. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all of the the fi- I mean, there's no way to hide. Well, no you know, hundred white dudes in Wayne, North Japan oh that are carrying guns That's that work for a contractor. <laughs> you know, you can't hide that. <laughs> I mean that's that's, that's like funny. I mean that that that's like trying to go into the middle of a um you know in the middle of a barn of mm-hmm. hay mm-hmm. and you know dried out hay and then putting like a Coca Cola on the top of it and then not be you know saying hey uh, the Coca Cola I can't find it you know? it's the only <laughs> right. thing that looks like it um, <laughs> right. it's it's not super hard to, so yeah. Uh. I mean, but when we first got there, before everyone else, we were telling people that we were baseball scouts. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> because at first, we just didn't want, we wanted, to, we were told to kind of keep as low of a profile as possible yeah. until such a point. But I mean, they kind of knew we were coming anyway. It's almost like the Japanese government must have told people because we'd get the questions and we're like, Expando radar? No, we're baseball scouts. <laughs> you know, no idea what you're talking about. I, I'm sure they knew we were lying, yeah. but they, you know, they played along cause they're polite. Yeah. And, that's funny. But yeah, it's uh, it, w- it was good times, but that's the, uh, that's the story of how we were, uh, became a legend in Japan. Nice man. <clears throat> it's always going to be a legend places. Um, be so, good to be a legend here in the United States, but I'm uh, not important enough for that. Well, you're working on it. I mean, <laughs> or wait, is that self-aggrandizing to say I'd like to be a legend in the United dude, States? Dude, everyone should. Is, is that allowed, on, bro? But is, but I mean, is that allowed? I think it's perfectly fine. I'm not. I'm not hating. But I mean, nope. I want to be known for changing how our how we grow food and how yeah, we have so, our relationship with food. But that's a that's well, you know, wanna, that's how. I want to hear a little bit about that though. Like, um, you know, I mean, it sounds like based on you know based on your travels and diving deep into the food and cultures and stuff like that. Like you you know you probably have a pretty broad um, array of interests in different types of foods. Right? Yeah, I I've become one of those spoiled people. So, yeah, same. you know, the the world works in an interesting place, right? So we we grew up and everything was this local to what we could get in our own resources yeah. and we started out very nomadic in our history because mm-hmm. we'd moved to where resources were. Yep. Then we learned how to cultivate stuff, but we were still limited on what what we had available because only certain things grew in mm-hmm. certain places. Mm-hmm. Then the world became more open as the result of trade and all of this stuff. And we've become so used to that selection in our food, right? We mm-hmm. get asparagus out of season. We get a, avocados out of season for our local environments. God, and because of, yeah, because of my travels, I've become so used to that. I mean, mm-hmm. living, growing up in the Seattle area, I got spoiled with seafood. So yeah. when I got to New Mexico, I basically avoided it because trust me, seafood <laughs> in the desert that's landlocked like New Mexico. Same with Vegas, dude. I mean, there was like <laughs> one, I mean, but in Vegas, the same in New Mexico, they yeah. had one or two places that paid the money to fly no, it in they would fresh. ship it in every day, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah and sure. but of but, course, but it's too far it. between and you got to find it and you pay for it. Yeah, and you pay for it, which yeah. of course then is we're talking about sustainability in life, right? That mm. isn't super environmentally friendly to spend mm. that kind of greenhouse gases on fly, fry, or frying, flying in your seafood fresh. Mm-hmm. So 
that becomes a, a conundrum, right? We're trying to take be better stewards of yeah. our planets, and you know that's kind of how I feel about environmentalism: is we we're stewards, not masters, and mm-hmm. we're supposed to take care of it for the next generation on some level. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that I'm perfect? Fuck no. I, I make bad decisions just like everybody else does. Uh, you know, some mornings I forget to bring my reusable coffee mug to the <laughs> to the coffee store, and you can't really recycle it because of the plastic liner or the wax liner or whatever. But what I'm saying when it comes to this in food is, I love my selection, but I also kind of want to be part of the part of the solution in terms of that. But how do we reconcile both? Mm-hmm. And that was one of the, that was one of two reasons that catalyzed my shift into agriculture, and the other was chasing narcotics and bad narcotics, counter narcotics policy in Afghanistan when I was at Blackwater. And so that kind of really started in this: how do we do two things? How do we provide a way for the Afghan farmers to make a living with something that is a economic value crop that meets versus, their thing? versus what? Okay, so like let's opium fields. Well, yeah. So let's let's dive or? down. So let's take a little tangent here. So yeah. for those listening, remember we're talking about that sustainability in agriculture and that shift between two things. But then let's dive down the tangent on one of the catalysts for this, and that was when I was in Afghanistan. So we were part of, we were part of the counter narcotics mm-hmm. mission, and there were three basic arms to counter narcotics that the U.S. and ISAF forces were taking. There was counter poppy eradication mm-hmm. so that means that we were eradicating the poppy crop the opium poppy which yeah. they use to create opium and heroin, heroin and particulate yeah, yeah all that stuff and all of that and technically i mean that even is where your um you know that's opium which is an opiate so that's even where your um hydrocodone your sure. oxycodone yeah, 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 and stuff yeah, 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 very, all of it. opioids yeah, yeah any opioids. of your opioids are, are still come opium poppies yes yeah. and, but they're you know there's uh, legal restrictions so sure but in afghanistan it's the largest producer of opium poppy in the world mm. and for illicit purposes prim- primarily um but the farmers there they don't grow it because they're they're wanting to be part of the illicit drug trade. They're not. It's not, it's like, not like, like the coca evil drug. No, it's not. It's not like some of the coca fields in, like in Colombia um, or, or whatever that are owned by the cartel right. that were set up by the cartel. No, these are farmers that have this land that pretty much doesn't grow much more that makes money. For mm-hmm. there's a couple of reasons that some of that is environmental. Afghanistan is a high desert, just like New Mexico. So you New Mexicans know what I'm talking about. Nothing fucking grows there. Yep. It's also um, very mountainous and rocky, yeah, right? Very mountainous in places mm-hmm. and rocky. And then the other thing is that traditional knowledge base, because of some related to the way the Taliban mm-hmm. kept information from them, there were, you know, human defecation on their crop fields and stuff make it to where it's not really safe for consumption. Uh, yeah, okay. And so they, um, and again, to kind of bring it down to where everybody knows what we're talking about. We're talking about straight up shitting on the fields that you then grow your food on. Yeah. Um, that's what I mean by human defecation, just in case. Some people confuse the word with vomit. I just want to make sure. Fields. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Literally, there's some <laughs> shitty fields. And it's just, it's from I'm a lack of education. <laughs> it's fine. It's a, it's a good one. But it's a lack of education, right? So they grow what would, it doesn't matter, right? It, yep. All of that doesn't matter because the opium is processed with hydrochloric acid and sulfur and all these things that doesn't matter. It kills everything. Yeah. Um, so they grew this crop and then they didn't have to worry about finding a market for it, right? Because mm. 
the illicit part of the value chain, so the drug dealers out of Russia or China, mm-hmm. they would come in and bring everything else to where these farmers just grow it, harvest it, and then they don't have to do anything else. Somebody else ha- comes in, they have the scientists to refine it, they have the distribution channel yeah. to take care of it. Everything they've got, no problem, lock stock. So basically, they're just essentially they're just growing a crop. Yeah, and, they're just growing the crop that makes them the money. And, yeah. So our so one just part to survive and make a it, living, just it, like anybody else. Exactly. Yeah. There is no evil intent or anything There's, else. We're not, just, we're not talking about uh, El Chapo here. No, they're just growing what made them money. Right. So then the U.S. government, we think that we need to eradicate it. So then we fly in and we burn it to the ground. Mm-hmm. Which then, of course, well, yeah, and then we we figure it out later that Mm -hmm. this isn't really good for hearts and minds or really we're creating two more problems rather than solve by trying to solve one problem. Kind of like kind of like trying to like if you got a leaky ship, you're trying to like patch it with gum or some shit, but then you find two more spots. <laughs> yeah, it, it's that or, you know, you, it's just it's a chasing problems and yeah. we have a problem with as humans sometimes to solve a problem, we create bigger problems. Yeah. So then we figure we can't do that, so we start paying them to grow grains. Which what? grains like oh, wheats grains, and grains, cereal grains? grains. Sorry, yeah, I, I heard something yeah. different. I was like, "What the yeah, hell?" Yeah, wheats and wheats and cereal grains yeah. and stuff. But the problem is, because of those farming practices, there's no one to sell it to. Mm-hmm. So now we're running that risk of sending them back because now they're not okay. We were paying them a subsidy, but it wasn't enough to really yeah. supplement mm-hmm. all their income just mm-hmm. to grow. Part of their income was supposed to come from selling what right. was being grown. Nobody wanted to buy it. So now we get the so now what are we we're stuck in this cycle that we created. So now we're buying it, mm-hmm. and then we can't get rid of it because no one will buy it because of food safety issues. So we're yeah. burning it again. So either way, we're burning down crops wow. to the tune of multi million dollars a year. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of what got me thinking: How do we sustainably allow for people to grow things that differently and and things that can make them money that may not be indigenous to that area, but do mm-hmm. it in a way that's sustainable and creates them an economic viability? Right. So that kind of catalyzed the idea for what I'm doing now. And then also that that my own desire when I was in New Mexico and I couldn't get a lemon from the grocery mm-hmm. store or that I couldn't get because New Mexico is more food insecure than some African countries, believe mm-hmm. it or not, because of the way the logistic system works. I want a head of lettuce and it's pretty much bad and or a tomato and it's pretty much bad. And I'm like, I want these selections. I want these food choices, yeah. but it's how am I going to do this sustainably? And so that's kind of what catalyzed even farther me finally jumping into it with Revolution Agriculture mm-hmm. is to really fundamentally change our relationship with agriculture from that monocropped chemical agriculture, just grow tons of it and everything else will sort itself out later, strip the soil. And that's kind of like what we're doing now is chasing how do we really grow anything anywhere, but then also do it in such a way that we're growing as close to the consumer as possible. Well, our goal is to bring the production of every crop within 10 miles mm-hmm. of where it's being consumed. So it's a global solution by taking a hyper-local approach. And then these things can be used in places like Afghanistan to create economic opportunity because now we're growing crops yeah. that people want to buy right. in a system that also by its own design negates the even the ability to defecate on it and to fall back into bad practices. Mm. You can't do it. So to be an example of falling back into bad practices, USAID found 15 farms in Afghanistan, spent a million dollars a piece mm. to completely rehabilitate and then grow stuff. And then the U.S. embassies and military were buying the crops 
But then as the situation kind of deteriorated and USAID wasn't going out and visiting the farms as much, the old habits started getting back in. And then when we're in the fields and that and other um, letting their animals that weren't, you know, not they weren't doing it properly. And so then food safety tests were coming in and it wasn't meeting the threshold for being able to be served to the U.S. forces. So then we just threw $15 million down the drain to rehab these, these farms. Yep. So the design of our systems in and of itself completely negates that problem. So that's kind of the, one of those two-part solutions, right? Now we can grow anything anywhere with right. our systems. Right. So it can be right in the middle of town or right in the middle of Kabul, Afghanistan. Like how much or, space do you need? Like, you know, and, so, and, and, I mean, cause, cause I, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, if I'm a restaurant, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, I go through a lot of product. Yeah. Right. Um, I think Chipotle, like one Chipotle restaurant, for example, could go through like two, 500 pounds of chicken a week, for example. Yeah. You know, and so that's, and that's just a portion of it, but like, you know, the, the other ingredients, you know, like the rice or whatever else, the tomatoes, jalapenos, that sort of thing. I mean, they go through a lot of stuff. So like, Mm -hmm. how does, like, how, like. How how big or small are these things, and how big or small do they so have to be at the to, smallest to be effective at these? Yeah, so the smallest size that we we target is eighty square feet. Okay, um, and then so a little bit smaller than your hotel in Japan. Yeah, a little bit smaller, <laughs> about not much smaller. Um, that's actually about the size of my room in Iraq. Actually, oh, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we want uh, you know about to three hundred twenty square feet. The our growing system could actually take over larger spaces, but it's not needed. And the mm-hmm. reason that that's important is because urban environment space is a premium becomes super expensive but there's a lot of space that's only 80 square feet 320 Mm -hmm. square feet that no one's doing anything with uh walk down any of your urban city streets in downtown and just look at the fenced lots that have a bunch of garbage doing Mm. nothing yeah um so if we can take over those spaces there's a lot of positive value there we can even start reactivating um areas of communities that have seen deinvestment because Mm -hmm. they don't have access to anything. Now we're creating access to a good food source. So now we might be able to catalyze the reuse of land again and Mm -hmm. bring back investment. So we're talking about tackling a lot of problems from a food perspective. Unfortunately, some of the people that actually can invest don't see it that way. You're not a high-speed, low-drag lettuce farm. Or why aren't you a this-for-that kind of guy? I just had a conversation couple days ago about investors are going to look for the you're the this guy you know well, that's what they like want to I'm the they uber want, they, for x yeah they want the like, easy it's the easy comparative right yeah and that's that's treating a simplification well and that's treating a symptom but that's also yeah. how you end up spending money on these businesses that because they oh it's laser focused it sounds so scalable but that's how you end up at uh IPO with an S1 that's got $900 million in losses on your S1 filing for an IPO because you're burning through cash more, caring more about what that laser focus is mm-hmm. than you're actually caring about the long-term viability of your solution because you're tackling a, a problem, not a symptom of a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's, so yeah, we, we have our laser focus, right? We're going to start with the hyper-local stuff, but for a restaurant like Chipotle, we might shout need out to take, Chipotle. Yeah, shout, shout out to Chipotle. <laughs> we might end up needing to take over a larger space yeah. in order to pr- provide enough turnover. But when we're talking about having access to all of these small, I might not need one large space. I yeah. might just need 20 or 30 small spaces to be able to produce. Well, I mean, it. I even think of like, you know, I'm from the Midwest, right? I'm from Michigan. Like I think of like how, how this could be implemented in a place like Detroit. Yeah. 
Flint, Saginaw, you know, those cities yeah, that those have basically places. been decimated since uh, NAFTA happened and, and the big three, shout out to the big three again, but, yeah. <laughs> but they started outsourcing the work to Mexico, right? Well, yeah, um, and I mean, it's... Know, like, their economy could definitely use something like that. Well, yeah, and I mean, a good example, like I said, too, is it could be used in Kabul. You, um, mm-hmm. The U.S. military imports so much, and it's so complicated to import. So mm-hmm. we can bring these agricultural systems to these communities, and we can also start changing how even our transportation and logistics mm-hmm. are. In town here in, in Seattle, one of the things that they worry about is the first and last mile, where these mm-hmm. produce trucks are just idling for hours cool. upon hours during the day as they just circle the city to do their deliveries because mm-hmm. they bring them in in one big truck yeah. and then they because of how dense the traffic is they do one delivery then they have to go sit and idle in a place and then they have to circle the city to come back to another delivery because they couldn't make that delivery mm-hmm. at that time because they couldn't access it if our systems are right next to these places already we can have people on foot or electric mm-hmm. bicycles or regular bicycles mm-hmm. Um, that can do the deliveries. And we're talking about changing everything about the way that we look at food. But people are, you know, we resist these things because it sounds so crazy. But that's... I, I just sit there and I think about like, you know, how many times in your travels you've been like, oh, like this food, is, there's nothing like having this food in this place. Yeah. Right? Like like, like, it was, like I was saying earlier with the, the sushi thing, for example, right? Like after I went to Tokyo and had sushi there, I'm like, it ruined it for me everywhere. You know, and like, like I just sit there and I think about like, um, well, dinner you know. kebabs is a good example. Turkish dinner kebabs. Yeah. When I when I was in Istanbul, used to get them for so cheap mm-hmm. from a little dinner kebab stand. Yep. Um, Germany's got a lot of them because they've got a large uh, immigrant population right. of Turkish mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. and it's become almost as German as it is originally Turkish. Yep. And I got here and I'm like, I want one so bad. You can't find it. Well, luckily enough, there is a stand right on Pike, um, at the end of Pike Place Market. Mm. It says Turkish Delight above it. She's a, um, she's been here for years, a Turkish lady. She's even got her daughter working in there nice. now. She doesn't take credit cards, take cash, people. Um, but I, I love her. It's I finally found it. But mm. that's the thing is... You can't always get to those places, right? Right. And so having access to these things, like a friend of mine from high school, she married a Navy guy, that, and then they were in Guam for mm-hmm. a few years. Mm-hmm. There are things from Guam that she misses that yeah. it's so difficult to get, even when you go to those more Chinatown, Asia yeah, town that, markets that do import yeah. these things. But even then, you run the risk of them not being any good anymore you, by the you time can't, you get them. You can't, get, is, you can't get the stuff at the same quality or the same availability uh, like outside of where it comes from yeah whether whether that's Chinese food here whether that's Western food and like China for example yeah. I mean, I'm using that as my example but you know like you get you go to like a I went there's this Mexican uh, restaurant and bar that I used to go to in, in Beijing um, shout out to QMEX uh, <laughs> but uh, you know it was good for drinking but like it was probably some of the best Mexican food in Beijing but it was shit Mexican food, dude. Well, Let's be honest. I mean, <laughs> New Mexico is the same way, right? Yeah. So I grew up in Washington where most of the Mexican food you can find is from like uh, uh, Jalisco. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I became very partial to it. I got to New Mexico thinking that, okay, I should be able to get good Mexican yeah. food. I thought it was all terrible. It was all absolutely terrible. And I'm not saying in it's New a bad Mexico. thing. In New Mexico. Yeah. Mm, so weird. it's because it's a cross between... Um, 
native New Mexican cuisine mm-hmm. and more Chihuahua, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those cuisines in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. But when you were thinking of going for like a Jalisco, Mexico, they just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And um, they just don't do the thing for you. Yeah. So, so I, was just, I, I couldn't see if it was still recording. Yeah, so I it, it looks like it is. So yeah, no, looks it, like, it looks like we're good. Yeah, I think but so. um, so yeah, it was just one of those things. I just couldn't find it. Then I get, I have to come back to Washington State of all places to get like good, proper, mm-hmm. what I feel is proper Mexican food. Or right. when I was living um, after the Navy, I got out for a bit and I was living with my grandparents mm-hmm. and, um, in Yuma, Arizona, mm-hmm. and we used to go across the border to Alcadonas, Mexico, all the time. And getting proper street tacos mm-hmm. from one of those, you know, those are what I missed. That's and, shit, dude. Yeah, and they Nothing just didn't. a good street taco. Yeah, dude. and they just didn't have them in yeah. New Mexico. And it was all oh. this stuff where I just didn't understand. But yeah. yeah, so that's part of what we're doing is you have something. We bring these the ability to grow these crops closer. So you get both the selection, but mm-hmm. then you can also make that sustainable choice. So we're giving people... Yeah. That combination, because the other problem too that we're that we're so having also is reducing the carbon footprint too, right? Well, exactly, yeah. which is important because whatever you believe politically, climate change is happening on some right. some degree. You can see it in the shift in the coffee belt. We're seeing yep. where that coffee belt is, which is traditionally between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, yep. on a very specific um, set of geographic coordinates. Mm-hmm. That that belt is shifting. Hmm. And that means the climate's changing somehow for some reason. Mm-hmm. So ignore the political reasons from it. It's happening. Yeah, whether people. it's man-made or just yeah, the planet or whatever. Yeah, like, whether whether it's cyclical planet. Yeah, whether it's man-made. Whatever yeah. you believe, you believe it and mm-hmm. do that. But it, it's happening. And so what that's out. creating is we're losing arable land each year. 29.7 mm-hmm. million acres of arable land every single yeah. year. Put that in perspective for the people who know Washington, that's basically half the state of Washington by land size every single year. Per year. Per year. So that means that, and then if all we're doing is these high speed, low drag lettuce farms, like all these VC investors want, and there's plenty of them out there. And truthfully, a thousand bucks and a trip down to an indoor garden shop and anybody can set up one of these high speed, low drag lettuce farms. They're not that unique. No, No offense to you hydro guys that are probably getting really mad at me, but hmm. it's not that hard to do. Right. You know, my 16-year-old kid with 500 bucks could set one up. Mm-hmm. Problem is we're having is we're losing arable land and then we're shifting to a monocrop solution from an indoor controlled environment agriculture system. Mm-hmm. We're pretty much heading to that scene in the matrix when Neo gets um, woken in. up mm-hmm. and then he's spooning that goop and Aye. and rabbit's <laughs> response is that it's a synthetic amino that has all of the essential things that your body needs we're heading that way but with greens so it, pretty soon takes longer than my lifetime well man, yeah so I enjoy food too much but if we do mm-hmm. if we continue this path where we're saying that agriculture is going to be fine the climate's going to be fine and we're just going to do hydro lettuce we're going to be drinking green lettuce smoothies for pretty you know yeah, pretty yeah. quick mm-hmm. and we're trying to tackle both that we use less water in our growing system 60 to 90 percent less water we're producing more food in the same square footage. We're producing it faster, mm-hmm. but it's got selection. Our first crop was a radish, was a French breakfast mm. radish that tasted amazing. Nice. Then we did ladris peas and we've done carrots. Mm. And so we're actually trying to provide both of those things. That's selection and sustainability. But again, you know, it takes money and effort yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And we're hoping that we can find the right group that says this is what we need. 
and that's what we're after and that's what we're trying to build here our first commercial box is being built here in washington state and but it's all out of our own money you know, and I got a buddy, people keep actually, telling us to crowdfund this no, stuff. I, well, but I got a buddy that's uh, he is. Um, I went to high school with him. He he got his PhD in agriculture. Uh, Doctor Pat, shout out Pat. <laughs> um, he actually works. Um, what was it? it? Was like some major, some big ag company. It doesn't surprise like Pioneer me. or something like that. One of those, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he he goes all over the world. He's like dealing with like genetics and stuff like that. I think he's in Germany quite a bit. Yeah, that would make um, sense. Yeah, but uh, I mean, that's where Bear Monsanto is. And yeah, sure. Um, so I don't know who he works for or whatever. But he's in Minnesota. But you know, a company like that could be something. Yeah, or that, that might have an that might that might get it and might have an interest. Or yeah, know. or they're gonna try to kill it because it uh, <laughs> tackle it goes right. after their their core market. But right. some people have been telling us we need to crowdfund. The problem is is. I suck at social media. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. I, I couldn't get a 500 people to like a post to save my life, which means yeah. I couldn't get a viral campaign to crowdfund this for nothing. Now, you put me in a room with people, and I'm, yeah. I'm great. Yeah. But really hard to get 5 million people to tr- contribute 100 bucks into a room without paying $5 million for a venue yeah, to, sure. to get 5 million people. So kind of ends up being... Uh, self-defeating at that point but so that's some of the struggles we have but that's what we're after to tackle and we we've got a cool team um my my coo he used to run manufacturing units for like sherwin williams rpm international um you know so we've got some manufacturing background my my chief development officer used to be a dude for hyperloop tt so the the super fast uh uh, transportation, but he's also a meta. He's a medal-winning medical cannabis grower out of California. No shit. Yeah, so he's uh, he knows his stuff when it comes to those things, and you know, then then my wife actually does all of our graphics and and all of those kinds of things to make it look good, because I I suck at those things. But the one thing that we kind of lack is that understanding of how to do social media so well, if anybody's got anything, any uh, any suggestions you know hit me up tell me how stupid i am you know send me an email tell me how bad i am at this stuff yeah. and you know and so it, i think more than anything it dude it's finding the right the right person you know the right champion right mm-hmm. you know like um even with my stuff or whatever like you know you can sit here and you can shout from the rooftops all you want dude but nobody's gonna hear you until you find that right person that uh um can help you with the certain, you know, oh, of course. Help, help you fill certain holes, right? Yeah, I mean, we were even told how awesome our tech would be for China for a number of reasons. Oh, for but, sure. But, I mean, that that requires money to get into that market yeah. and a champion to help us really kind of get to that market. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's something that we want to do because it's not just solve agriculture for the U.S. We designed right. our systems to be able to put in, in places like remote Africa or Afghanistan yeah. that can do these things while accounting for the fact that the labor isn't going to be super technology advanced. That's the other problem with a lot of these vertical indoor hydroponic companies. You almost need a STEM degree Mm -hmm. to even be able to harvest lettuce from these places. I mean, it's the same thing that happened to a lot of mechanics, right? Once cars went from being mostly mechanical mm-hmm. to mostly computers yep. a good chunk of mechanics lost their job and, and that's suddenly had to have an it degree essentially. yeah essentially to be a to work on cars and i mean that's kind of what's going on with agriculture as well is either you still do the same old thing the same old way mm-hmm. which we're losing the ability to or you need a freaking advanced stem degree yep. in order to be able to work at a farm for crying out loud Isn't that crazy i mean that's insane yeah so i mean but that's where we're at that's what we're doing and Hopefully these kinds of things where we keep telling our cool stories and chatting with people and they'll find us and enjoy. But I mean, that's just one of the things we're doing. Mm -hmm. The rest of it, we're still trying to keep, uh, 
keep light of the situation, have a good time, and right on, man. Meet new um, friends, and I gotta tell you, it's been it's been a hell of a time. Yeah, we um, probably could keep going for like four hours, but I but I but I think, I think we're at a pretty good point right yeah, now. And I think um, you and I both have other things we have to get to today. <laughs> I got stuff to do. We've yeah. got places to be. I actually um, have an investor meeting I got to go talk to, who's actually uh, happens to be from China. So, oh, cool. Um, lives here in Seattle now, but he, he, he <laughs> lives say, in Seattle uh, now. Say, say, what upon your banchong shuo ni hao. Although, isn't... Uh, it just says my friend Brian, well, banchong is my Chinese yeah. name, but yeah, my friend Brian says hi, basically. Yeah. Um, but cool, man. Yeah, dude, it's been a great time chatting, man. Um Maybe somebody hears this. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit? I mean, you know, obviously it's not an infomercial, but yeah. can you give us a little plug? What do you you know tell us about the name of your company? How do we get a hold of you? That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, so it's Revolution Agriculture, and it's simply revolutionagriculture.com. Uh, and you can find our social media links from there. Some of them might find uh, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, LinkedIn. But that's how you find us. If you're interested in being a host or a customer. There's places to sign up as both. If you want to help, tell me how stupid I am at doing my job. You know, I'm always interested in hearing that feedback as well. Um, but you know, if you if you're gonna give criticism, don't be surprised if at first I uh, I reach back with a with a passive aggressive haughty <laughs> remark. Um, you know, that's just how it goes. You, you be mean, you get mean back. But we'll figure it out. I'm always up for uh, suggestions and. If there's a champion in the winds out there that can help us figure it out, uh, you know, how to get to the next step, how we could use it. We're Like I said, we're out to really change how things go, and we need all the help we can get. Hell and yeah, I appreciate man. Brian having us on here to, or, uh, or Bonchon, you know, half the city over here. Um, half the city, that's right. So uh, we can, you know. Shout out to half the city. <laughs> and and if, you, if you know, if you know uh, half the city over here and not me or Brian and not me, then uh, reach out to Brian. He'll put you in touch. So Right on, man. Appreciate it, man. Hell yeah, dude. It's been a good time. You too. Give it up for Richard Brian, guys. You've been listening to Half the City with Brian Shinborn. Presented by AB Media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Share it with your friends and leave a solid five-star review to ensure these stories get spread far and wide. For more information, as well as to listen to other shows, including Relentless, a survivor's search for passion, purpose, and inner peace, and beyond Relentless, be sure to check out 8bmedia.com. Thank you for listening.